This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 511 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 511tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com, and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 511 Tactical, you can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by GovX. And as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself. And GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. 
And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX gives back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. Welcome to episode 404 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show the two French brothers behind the 9-11 documentary, November 13th, and their most recent one, Notre Dame, Jules and Gédéon Naudet. Now, I have literally been waiting four years to talk to these two incredible men after being moved so powerfully by their documentaries and understanding their passion for the first responder community, specifically the fire service. So I was humbled, I was honored to sit down with them and had so many questions that this conversation went on for two and a half hours. As you will hear, Gédion had to actually leave and go and get his children from school because I kept him so long. But they witnessed firsthand the tragedy in New York City And then they documented the tragedy in Paris and then obviously the Notre Dame fire as well, amongst other documentaries that they've done on top of that. So I can't recommend strongly enough to listen to this from beginning to end. In the midst of what we have been through this last year and some of the things that we've already been exposed to in 2021, this restores the faith in humanity. You hear the beautiful stories that came out of some of these horrendous terrorist attacks. Now, before we get to that conversation, as I say every single time, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I truly do love reading your feedback and leave a rating. Every five-star rating makes this podcast more visible for others to find it. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said... I introduce to you Jules and Gédéon Naudet. Enjoy. So Jules and Gédéon, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. Most welcome. Thank you. Now, despite the accents, where are we actually finding you on planet Earth today? Uh, I'm in uh, uh, Connecticut. Um, I'm in New York City. But And for the record, uh, uh, I wish I could be talking like uh, Sylvester Stallone. I took classes, but uh, you know, <laughs> growing up in Paris, France, uh, I guess, uh, yeah, it was too late. <laughs> <laughs> I was asked the other day if I was popular with the girls when I was younger because of an English accent. And I told them no, because everyone was English, so no one cared. But now, <laughs> I don't know if you have the same thing, but when you move to a different country, people find your accent intriguing. The, the, the French uh, did, did go a long way. That's true. <laughs> Beautiful. All right. Well, I love to start at the very beginning. So 
where were you born? And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and if you had any other siblings. Um, Richard Leon, you want to start? Uh, okay, okay, okay. Um, uh, I, I don't get much credit being the, the first one, uh, uh, of course, because uh, the second one, Jules, got all the brain and, 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 and the rest. Uh, but uh, yeah, we, 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 we were born in both in Paris. Uh, our parents uh, are Parisian, and uh, and crazy enough, they decided uh, when we were respectively 18 and 16 years old um, that they wanted to change their life and uh, and 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 move to New York City. And uh, at that time, it was uh, New York was like uh, was like in the movies. It was Starkey and Hutch and. Uh, and everything that you, you could possibly uh, imagine when you're growing up uh, watching a series on TV. And, uh, and we arrive in, in, in New York and, uh, and right away uh, we, we knew we wanted to make, uh, uh, to continue to make uh, documentaries and, and, and films. Uh, that was something that we had started years before. Maybe you can talk about that, Jules. So I think the, to, to go back uh, before, so we were, our, um, family environment. Our uh, father was the editor-in-chief of a magazine called Photo, which was all about uh, photojournalism and photography in general. So we were raised very early on with these great masters of photojournalism uh, between uh, Cartier-Bresson and, uh, and, and all uh, uh, of the others who, who were, you know, uh, uh, coming for lunch with our, 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 our parents and our father in particular. And so as little kids, we would listen to these incredible stories of how to capture a moment with them. It was with one click, with one image. But we were struck by that. And our, uh, our parents were absolute cinephile and we were watching movies every single night. Uh, on Sunday night, uh, where in France, we normally around midnight, you have classics that, uh, that air, whether it is a Kurosawa or a Renoir or whatever it was, or uh, Orson Welles. And actually, they would force us to watch it. They thought it was important for our general culture. And the next day, they would write us uh, a note that we would give to our teachers saying, oh, I'm terribly sorry, but yesterday, you know, the rules of the game by uh, Renoir was on TV and we thought it was very important. So, of course, all the teachers were convinced we were writing our notes ourselves. <laughs> And we'd call our parents and our parents would invite them to, 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 to lunch because we were honestly very bad in school. And so they needed to do some kind of uh, uh, work around that. And so they would invite our teachers to school and said, you know, but this is the importance of cinema and what it teaches you and et cetera. Et cetera. So very early on, we're, we were raised with, you know, moving images and uh, photography as, as examples on how to tell a story for us. It morphed a little bit into uh, documentaries instead of photography. And I think we got uh, our father lent us our first camera when uh, Gédéon was 12. I was nine. We we're still in the same dynamic. He was kind of the director. I was um, the actor at that time. And that's where we started and continuing into continuing being interested in documentary filmmaking in particular. And I think the first program we made was uh, at Gédéon's uh, high school. Uh, where we did a, um, a, um, a kind of a profile of the, uh, the, the, the students and the teachers, which ended up being banned by the school. But we set up um, uh, uh, secret screenings in, inside the school during the high school time, where, of course, you would see all the, the, te the, the teachers uh, screaming in vain while the, the, the students are playing uh, Dungeon and Dragon in the back of the class or whatever it was. But so that's where we got our first taste for, you know, 
kind of the fly on the wall kind of documentary style that we really like, but also to show the the humanity of things in our you know own uh, immature way at that time. And but when we arrived to the United States and and in New York, which was always the the, the biggest dream of our parents, who always told us you know one day kids we will go there. And um, and so being raised with American cinema and series and all that, you know, when we arrived, Gideon was 19, I was 16. It was almost like it felt like coming home. You know, everything was bigger. Everything was 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 wilder, was more extreme. And we felt right at home because that the electricity that we would have and would walk this, you know, just on you walk one block in New York and you've met uh, you've crossed paths with people from 20 different countries with different crazy adventures probably that happened to them. And so that energy, you know, uh, sustained us and fed us very early on and then we went to NYU and 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 tried to to learn at least professionally on how to do uh, documentaries and and uh, in, in in film in general but um, it was really that awakening moment of coming to New York and feeding off that uh, that electricity that you can feel and that possibility that um, there is no uh, everything is possible that you know cliche that uh, you know the american dream uh, is really was a reality for us, of course. Yeah, and so it's it's interesting how you, as you mentioned, your observation was immediately how diverse New York was, and I had the same thing. Even even in England, I grew up in the farm, in a very rural part of England. So when I would go to Heathrow Airport on ski trips or whatever, I'd always have the same thing. Like, what a beautiful tapestry that airport was of the world, and then London was the same thing. So it's it's then crazy, and obviously as we're recording this, there's some lunacy going on in this country at the moment, um, that sometimes people in this country don't see just how diverse and beautiful their own country actually is. Mm-hmm. No, and we're lucky. I think it's particular for us from a European descent like this, where you know Europe, we're, we're we're small and we're big at the same time. You know, you can take the car or the train, and in two hours you can be in a different country, and then an hour, two hours later, you're in another country after that. So I think it's really I've always found it a, a strength to be able to be um, uh, in the middle of all these different cultures, and I think it's a plus to to realize that we're not alone, and uh, there's uh, it's uh, an incredible and beautiful and crazy world out there and we're enriched by the people in it. Absolutely. Well, Gédéon, getting back to your childhood in France or in Paris specifically, obviously we're going to talk about you know the Bataclan and that horrendous day um, a little bit later. But being younger, I talk about this a lot. When I grew up in England, we had the IRA bombing. So we were exposed to terrorism when I was young. I remember a lot of the hijackings and, and plane bombings. Through your lens, obviously you had no intention of documenting terrorist attacks when you were becoming filmmakers. Um were there any kind of tragedies in France you know, d- during your childhood um, you know, prior to obviously moving to the U.S.? Indeed, uh, the the France uh, and Paris in particular, where we grew up, uh, experienced uh, the terror, uh, the horror of terrorism in the 80s. Uh, it was uh, the first bombs uh, attack Um and we remember quite well, uh, you know, sometimes our parents uh, asking us to uh, uh, just to give us to, to give them a call uh, right uh, right coming out from school to make sure it was safe to uh, to come home, walking back home by ourselves. Uh, we remember uh, bombing exploding uh, near a father um, uh, office. Uh, and that was, yes, that was quite uh, scary. 
Mm -hmm. It was it was very much an environment uh, then. Yeah, no, the, the terrorism was something we we that we all knew about. It continues uh, after we we arrived in the U.S. You had that big wave in in the mid and early '90s of bombings in the RER, the uh, the the, um, the subway in Paris, where almost every three days a bomb uh, uh, with a pipe bomb with nails and all that would explode in a in a busy um, uh, busy subway uh, train. So uh, France has always just uh, like you, you were born with it, you would uh, listen to it on the radio and on the news at night with your parents most probably. It was, it, it permeated. Uh, we, um, terrorism was something we were aware of and uh, even though we had not seen it firsthand, it was never very far away. Yeah. And and who was uh, behind the, the attacks that you were seeing in, in Paris? Was that again fundamentalist That's Islam? The yeah, I think it was the PLO, the Palestinian, Palestinian Liberation Front, and I think you had also a wave of Corsican extremists. So there was a bit of both. It was, but these were at that time, I would say, were not more um, um, religious based, more politically uh, uh, based. It was more a, uh, a, a, a political struggle. Result is the same: terrorism is terrorism, and uh, and the trauma and the death. Is the same. I think there it was not on a religious basis as we've seen uh, 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 later after that. Yeah. All right. Well, then. So now you're in New York. So lead me through your education and then how you found yourself approaching FDMY. Should they, you <laughs> you pick up this one? Uh, yeah. Well, it's uh, it's a bit always a bit a shameful. Uh, 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 tell basically because um, uh, here we are arriving in New York in the luggages of our parents, and I'm 19, Jules is 16, and uh, and we are incredibly lucky that one of us is uh, accepted to teach uh, NYU uh, film school, the famous one. Uh, still have no idea how they 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 got us in, but. Uh, so only one of us um, is uh, is there, and and because our parents simply cannot afford to pay two tuition, um, and so uh, Jules and I have this crazy idea to uh, <clears throat> pretend that, uh, as I'm officially registered, to pretend that Jules also is uh, officially registered, and uh, I'm going to take uh, twice as many credits. Uh, and I'm going to give half of the classes to Jules. I'm going to take the directing classes, and he's going to take the producing classes. And um, and to this day, we we it's insane to think that they never they never realize what what happened. And for four years, uh, Jules uh, Jules uh, got to NYU completely uh, illegally. Uh, <laughs> but. Uh, but, so I'm the only one who officially graduated. Um, we will be forever grateful to NYU, and whenever we can, we uh, we uh, we thank them uh, because it was an amazing school. It's one of those schools where uh, you don't have to do so much theory; you can just take the camera and go out and experiment, and that's the only way you're really going to learn. And uh, and that's what NYU would. Uh, would let us do and uh, but yeah that was the only way to 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 learn I mean it, uh, yeah we, we had to beg and cheat <laughs> beautiful and 
And this led us to, as we were um, finishing uh, NYU, we reconnected with a friend from Paris who had been at uh, Gédéon's high school and who had moved to New York and who had married a, an amazing guy who, uh, who was an actor but was also a firefighter, James Hanlon. And after numerous uh, French dinners, where, which would go very, very late into the night, and uh, James would, uh, would tell us these incredible tales of, you know, life in, of a, a New York City firefighter and especially life in a, in a firehouse, that kind of amazing, mysterious and fascinating brotherhood. And so we came up with the ideas all together to what if we do um, a documentary on the uh, on a firehouse and especially on a young firefighter. And what better way to do it than to use a, a young probie, a rookie firefighter in his probation period, which lasts nine months. And we we we, we thought it was great. We, we kind of knew it was a very long shot because I think the last time that uh, cameras had been allowed by the um, the FDNY in a firehouse was uh, actually from the BBC uh, in 1975. A documentary called "The Bronx Is Burning" uh, came out. Uh, fascinating. Uh, you should appreciate that. But it's really at the heyday where you know you would uh, when they would um, uh, you would look at this, uh, uh, a baseball game at um, a Yankee Stadium. They would pan in the back and you would had plume of smoke and like five different parts of uh, of the Bronx was, were burning. So, and so. Since 1975, no one had been allowed to film in the firehouse. And so coming to the fire department with James, who was a firefighter, with, uh, I think, our, our, th our thesis film at NYU, which was about amateur boxer in Spanish Harlem, which was a very human and very, um, you know, uh, uh, good way to look at, at things. I think they, they appreciated that and they decided to give us a chance. Um, we we knew uh, the parameter was we wanted to follow ev at every single a time that the um, the, the probie would uh, would be uh, whether he was doing a 24-hour shift or a 12-hour shift would be there, and so the idea was, well, we're going to follow for nine months and we'll see what happens. The problem is that uh, no one was up, was interested in that. We had sent uh, letters to every broadcasters in the U.S. in France, and everyone kept telling us, "Oh, it's very nice, but honestly, you know, firefighters don't really interest anyone." And so, as usual, you know, the beg, steal, and borrow. We didn't steal, but we borrowed from friends and best friends and. Uh, we took um, we took day jobs to be able to pay for the tapes. Um, I was a, a Xerox uh, copy person, which of course now sounds uh, antiquated, but you know I was in a production company just making Xeroxes. And Gideon, what were you doing for that? Oh, I, I was a, a busboy and a very bad one at it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the idea was to find ways and. <clears throat> Um, once we had the, the at least the, the the budget, which was not much, to to buy the cameras and buy the tapes at that time, um, we worked with the fire department to try to kind of do a casting in a way, select the probie. So for this, we went to the um, uh, the um, the fire academy, fire academy, the Rock, and uh, talked to the new class and introduced ourselves and said, "This is who we are. This is what we've done, and this is what we'd like the project we'd, we'd like to do." And so. Out of, I don't know, a class of 200, there was about 50 that were interested in at least talking to us. We, you see in the documentary the kind of the interviews we do at first. And as soon as we met uh, Tony Benetatos, it, it, it literally, as we say, it, he was the one. You know, he had that naivete and that, uh, that enthusiasm of use. And especially he had no link to the fire department, contrary to a lot of others who were sons 
grandsons, uh, uh, cousins, uh, or, or nephews of, uh, of firefighters themselves, here was a blank slate. And what better way for the audience to identify with them? Because as Tony would come to the to the firehouse and discover this world, the, through his eyes, the audience will have the same way, discovering everything, being a virgin to that world. And so uh, we got the okay, he agreed to participate. He just, he finished uh, the, uh, the training at the Rock and was assigned on, I think, uh, July 2nd or something like that, uh, June uh, 3rd, I think, to come to the, um, to, to the firehouse. Beautiful. And just prior to that, it just occurred to me, had you had any exposure with the Sapo Pompier in, pa- in Paris itself? No, 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 never. Well, just, I, I guess, like every uh, uh, young boy, uh, you know, fascination with the uh, big red trucks and the French one in particular, who looks like uh, they're coming out from a Star Wars movie when they put their C-3PO helmet down. And, you know, it was always kind of... Uh, the normal fascination, but I actually, you know, never been to a fire, never met uh, any of them uh, socially or uh, or any other way. So that was a dream come true. All this was kind of uh, a, a lifelong uh, little boy's dream coming true. Beautiful. Well, I know um, he, he refers to himself. Well, I think you talk about him as you know black clouds and, and white clouds. And he was definitely a white cloud. And it's funny because outside FDNY, a lot of people revere the city and i think it's based more on the war years that you know every station is just burning you know every shift and the reality is most of the the busy departments even more inner city we don't get as much fire in you know 2021 as as those guys did in the 70s and 80s so kind of walk me through your expectation of what these shifts were going to look like and what his first few weeks actually look like so um so we we start, of course, you know, uh, our uh, our in a, in our imagination, we'll be going to a fire every day. It's going to be amazing. Babies will be saved, and uh, and, and and all that. So, uh, but the reality is, actually, what was complicated is, as you can imagine, two little frogs, as they would call us, coming with cameras in a place where normally what stays in the firehouse, you know, what happens in the firehouse stays in the firehouse. And here you have two strange French creatures with uh, incredible accents who are filming their every move. So their first go to, even though, you know, the captain of the uh, of the engine had agreed and the captain of the engine in a house where you have a, uh, the engine and the, and the truck, the captain of the engine is the captain of the house. And so they had agreed, but we, as soon as we came in, every time we would film them, they would come up with the most incredible curse words I had ever seen and still to this day ever heard. And so, of course, we couldn't use anything at all. And so whenever we would be there, they would do that. So we decided, okay, it's going to be a little bit more complicated than we thought. Um, also by the fact that whenever Tony would work, there was no job whatsoever. It was just, you know, as Gideon said, it was a, a fantastic cooking show, which is in itself is something else, which is actually, I think, is the way we kind of uh, uh, got to their, um, to, 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 for them to trust us, which James had told us very early on. Don't worry, you're, they're going to, you know, make fun of you mercilessly until, you know, they accept you. And you will see the change almost overnight. There is the moment where, you know, they start from making fun of you to, you know, actually from not talking to you to making fun of you. Making fun of you, that's a good, uh, that's a good, uh, that's a good sign. And the more they really ride, uh, ride you, the more you're accepted. And so we kind of knew of that. But I, I remembered when they would... Um, 
not really talk to us uh, or that, or look at us with a kind of a strange uh, uh, look. I remember that our grandmother told us, you know, if you want to, for, for certain people, if you want to get to them, go through their stomach. So I started cooking quite a lot. And uh, we did lasagnas, we did um, uh, uh, French fries that didn't come out from a bag and frozen and, uh, you know, all of these things. And I think that really was one of the big parts that they said, eh, they're maybe not that bad. You know, they cook OK. So so that was the start of uh, at least of it. Yeah. Well, well, it's funny because there's that one scene where you make lamb and I'm sure to, again, European eyes, you're like, well, this is going to be enough. American portions are very different. So so what was that day like for you? It's strangely enough, for me, Gideon, you'll tell, it was the best day of that entire project. You know, we're cooking this amazing uh, meal, which I was very proud. And it was, you know, it was uh, a leg of lamb, flageolet beans and and, uh, mashed potatoes. You cannot go more French than this with the little sauce that goes with it and all that. Except that like a moron, you know, yes, I I forgot to to realize that uh, uh, instead of doing one leg of lamb, you know, I should have had at least 12 of them. (laughs) But, you know, so we cook and we set the meal and everyone is in a fantastic mood and everyone is really making fun of us and everyone is laughing and you can feel that fantastic energy. And I remember the moment you know being in the kind of in, in the doorway looking at everyone and everyone is having a great time and Janelle and James are all you know uh, telling stories and all that and and you you see and I, I remember reflecting oh, this is the moment finally we're accepted this is amazing and as you know the craziness and, rea- and reality being stranger than fiction it is the night of September 10 and uh, that we would not know that the next day everything would change but that night was a fantastic night even though then later on during the night we had like five false alarms and we barely slept and since we were still you know completely uh, uh, terrorized of uh, missing a fire we would sleep completely dressed shoes on and cameras and on the shoulder like this on the on the couch ready to pounce at any movement and terrorize that we would miss it or we'd be in the bathroom when the bell runs out you know the normal firefighters uh, probably uh, kind of uh, worries but uh, and uh, and and then the the next day was completely different. Absolutely. Well, and that's that's what's so heartbreaking. I think with nine eleven, with November thirteenth, um, even even with the Notre Dame documentary, is especially with those two where lives were lost. Is you take a moment to paint the picture of what the morning was like, you know. And so obviously, you know, we'll talk about it in a second the calls that they ran right right before it happened, and then in November thirteenth, the people setting up for the day in the cafes, and so. So let's talk about that. So kind of what was the morning like prior to, you know, when the world changed, as it were? Change the only one. Uh, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a regular morning. Um, uh, I mean, right away we, we wake up um, and we, we know that around 7, 8 o'clock in the morning, uh, there's going to be a shift. And so Tony Beletatos will just go home. And, um, and, uh, but, but right away, uh, we, we call our parents like, like we often do. And, and they live in Paris. And, and we tell them, look, yeah, it was another, another night where there was no fire but but uh, but we really believe we 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 connecting with the guys they're finally accepting us and then uh, and they're very happy for us and we hang up with our parents and we say well, i'll speak to you later 
uh, have a great day and and uh, and right when we hang up i think the 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 alarm ring and it's uh an odor of gas on VZ and church, something like that. Jules, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Yeah. Lispinard. Lispinard. And, uh, and so uh, Jules, who, uh, who has a camera that follows uh, the chief, the, the chief car. And at that time, it's uh, Chief Pfeiffer, Battalion Chief uh, Joseph Pfeiffer, who's uh, on duty. So Jules jump on the, with uh, the chief in his car. And um, the the truck follows, and I'm with a second camera, and I'm my job is to follow the rookie Tony uh, at all times, except that Tony had just just barely been relieved, um, and so it is he is relieved. Uh, the other rookie who gets uh, on the engine and follows uh, the chief and Jules and the truck, I stay in the firehouse with Tony and uh, and basically minutes pass and 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 and, uh, and I guess you you should tell the story because this is so, uh, <laughs> all this is unbeknownst to me when I take the uh, the the call and I go in the in the chief's car you have to understand we had uh, set up our responsibility Gedeon which is the oldest and the accomplished uh, cameraman was the one filming Tony at all times and so me being uh, uh, kind of the newbie and and not um, and filming for the first time we we had thought but you know it will be an interesting point of view to have the chief also the battalion chief so we have two different um, uh, insights into uh, the job the the man who go inside the fire and the, the strategy part of the the chief itself and so you know I've been doing that all summer most of the chiefs know me pretty well Chief Pfeiffer. We've, we've, we've seen each other. He's kind of used to the little French guy in the, in the back of his uh, SUV with a camera. So it's nothing, you know. And so <clears throat> I, <clears throat> when I um, arrive at uh, Lespinard and, and Church, <clears throat> honestly, it's a pretty normal day. It's gorgeous. I remember it's a blue, uh, blue sky. I think I'm thinking about, you know, going voting later on because it was the mayoral election of, uh, of New York at that time, <clears throat> right on that day. And... Um, so I uh, I arrive and just film and I'm sure Shadeen was there. But, you know, at the fire scene, there's a lot of, of, of people. There's a lot of options. So I don't see him. But for me, he's, you know, with Tony somewhere. I don't I concentrate on what I'm supposed to do. And since I'm, you know, I'm new at this, I always kind of do the cliche. I'm going to film kind of the landmark that is right in front of me so I can kind of get a, a good point of um, to find myself. So it's always the World Trade Center is there. So I always kind of do the pants from the World Trade Center, moving back to the to the guys. You know, I'm thinking in my head how I'm not going to mess this up and Jadeo is going to scream at me if I don't do it. Take <laughs> so, you know, it's still the little brother, older brother kind of thing. So, you know, just practicing, filming. I see uh, Chief Pfeiffer who's, uh, who sees that there is a slight odor of gas, but, you know, Con Edison, which is the gas company's call, standard procedures, there's nothing, you know, we don't smell a lot of gas, so we're, we're not concerned at all. But we stay around as is um, the, the, what you're supposed to do until the uh, Con Edison arrives. And as we're milling around and I'm filming uh, Chief Pfeiffer, uh, I carry a small camera, it's about like this, I carry it normally at my hip. So I can look around and see what's happening, and 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 I look on the little LCD screen to kind of see what I'm what is in frame, and as I'm filming the um, uh, the chief, I remember we hear this kind of loud roar, like getting a bit louder. You know, we're used to to planes in New York City, but this one was 
different. So I remember looking up and seeing in between two buildings, behind two buildings, a plane that goes in the back of it. And it's pretty large. It's pretty fast. It's pretty low. I can read American Airline, um, American Airline on the on the back of it. And then, you know, it kind of disappears behind a building. And I'm, so I'm okay, reflex, my camera is already on. So I, you know, turn to follow its trajectory and see what, what's going to happen. And it, as it reappears behind the building, it crashes into one world trade. It's the moment where, uh, which is normal, but time completely kind of uh, uh, dilates. It's, you know, seconds seem, seem to, to, to take minutes. And, and it's very strange. I think it's, uh, you have such a, a, a sensory overload that being able to process that kind of slows down everything. So between, between what I'm seeing and what I'm thinking, I, I cannot make sense of the two together. And I'm brought back kind of to reality by the sound. There is a delay in the explosion, which I hear and see the, 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 the firefighters all around kind of being uh, removed from that microsecond of, uh, of shock. And then everyone jumps into their, their trucks and, and the chief jumps into his car. I follow him immediately. And then we dash to the, uh, to, to, to the World Trade Center where we're there in about you know a minute and a half flat since it's early on. It's 8.46. There's not much um, people at that time. And, uh, but we're cruising. And, and what I don't uh, remember at that time, even though I'm filming continuously, is the chief actually says, and I will find that later when I rewatch the tape, Chief Pfeiffer saying, you know, it looked like a direct attack. The World War One was uh, the, um, the World Trade Center was was hit, and then gives where they should meet. So one, the first one inside one World Trade Center, and the other one as a secondary um, a staging uh, post a little bit uh, further. But you know, it's 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 hard to really think concrete. I'm just concentrating on what I'm seeing, trying to 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 film the chief and his driver, Head Fahey, and all that. But um, it's kind of chaos in my mind at that point. So you, know, you want to jump back and forth? We can do back and forth between Gedeon's perspective and mine, maybe. Please, please. Okay. Well, uh, so I'm I'm in the firehouse. It's completely empty firehouse with just uh, Tony, the the the, the proby firefighter, and. Uh, is about to to leave to go home when suddenly there is a large uh, frantic knock at the firehouse front door, and he opened the door and there is this guy who says, "You guys have to come. There is a, there is a, there is an explosion. There is a plane that hit the the, the World Trade Center. Uh, come right away." And it it makes no sense. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, Tony looks at me. I look at Tony. Uh, we, we, the, the firehouse is completely empty. Uh, I, I, I just pick up the camera and I go around the corner on, on Church Street, and I see a gigantic hole in one World Trade Center with smoke coming out of it. And it's this moment where suddenly I feel terribly guilty uh, for the entire summer. Uh, I wished that something would go on, uh, that we would see a fire. Um, uh, uh, and, and suddenly here it is, uh, a, a plane. I just crashed into the World Trade Center. This is just too big. This is too, and, and I, you know, it's a stupid reaction. You know, why, why should I feel guilty? I didn't make it happen, but, but I did. And uh, so, so, uh, I'm thinking, damn, where is Jules? And uh, he must be uh, with uh, with everyone. And uh, he must be heading toward the World Trade Center. So I 
I, I go back, I, I tell Tony that there is indeed a gigantic hole in, in, in the World Trade Center, and I pick up all the equipment and I start walking down to, to Church Street, uh, to the World Trade Center. And um, I, same with Jules, you know, it's very un, uh, hard to, to comprehend uh, filming the reaction of the people. Um, it's like the entire planet was there looking at, uh, looking up, um, and, um, and, and, and quickly just arrive. I remember arriving at, uh, down the world trade center, uh, this gigantic boom explosion. Um, and it was the second plane just hitting the, the South tower. Um, and, and yeah, that, that's, that's those twilight zone moment where, uh, you, it's just too much. Uh, you, this, this is no accident anymore, but you have no idea what to do. Uh, uh, the only thing I knew was Jules was at the World Trade Center. Uh, uh, those two towers were, 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 were uh, burning, and now uh, cops were telling everybody to, to evacuate. So I just walked back to the, to the firehouse. Jules. I think the, the, the crazy part that where it becomes, you know, it kind of goes on the, uh, of the rail, which is already when we see the first plane. I remember for me, it was a series of just getting things from, 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 from bad to worse, you know, arriving at the, uh, uh, finally at the World Trade Center by parking right under the awning of One World Trade, the, the North Tower, and seeing the chief uh, uh, gets out, starts to put his bunker gear. And of course, I ask him, you know, can I come in with you? And he tells me, yes, you know, please don't um, don't leave my sight. And I think in him, we talked after, after about it. He didn't want me to start uh, being around. He didn't want me if he if he he thought that if he told me not to to go in, I would be around it. And he knew it was dangerous. And so we went in. And I think what, as soon as we go in, I see these two people who are uh, burning uh, alive. And it made me almost remember these these pictures that uh, we had seen um, when we were. Um, uh, young people, the the the, the Vietnam, the photo, uh, f um, war photographers were taken in uh, the Vietnam um, war with uh, you know a little girl burning and and all that. All these images came back flooding into me, and because here you know having my brother and I have lived very sheltered life up to that point. You know, I think the the, the death the closest we had seen was a relative in a in a suit in a in in a coffin that you pay your respects to, but. Here, the immediacy and the horror of it, and 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 the sight, the sound, the the smell, everything was so horrible that I think that gauge, at least in my part, and I think Shadeon did the same. I I'm censored myself from that moment on, seeing seeing, which was a defense mechanism. I don't think there's anything noble about what I wanted to do and all that. I think I was at first trying to protect myself from the horror of the image that is still steer, seared into my brain until uh, still today that no one should see this that there is a certain respect of uh, in life but in death also and so from that moment on uh, uh, i would not as Chideon also uh, separately had made that same decision filming the dead or the or the wooden in a way that was gratuitous we didn't want that and so as i come in the the the, the world trade center or, First, I see that all the windows outside have been blown out. It looks very strange. You have that smell of kerosene downstairs. You don't know what happened. We would learn later on that it was the um, jet fuel that went down a broken elevator, elevator shaft that created that fireball in the lobby, and that burned these people in these um, right there that I was that I was seeing. And so, as I'm going to the left, following the chief, still you know, we hear 
uh, one of our guys from the, I think the the truck, uh, Jamal, who who actually um, uh, used the extinguisher and and puts down the person, and that person is then taken outside. And I think that person lived actually, and um, and then I follow the chief, and we go to the um, the fire control area, uh, which is right to the left when you come in, and and then you know firefighters start streaming in. It's a nonstop sirens, guys coming in, checking in, going up, and. Here I don't feel worried in a way. I feel, uh, you know, I'm surrounded by these amazing, you know, kind of uh, superhero who don't wear maybe uh, uniforms or or, or or capes, but you know, their bunker gear. It's a, for me, it's a giant S in a way. It's kind of a Superman. But uh, and and also I I feel that you know I, I've seen that the fire is very high above me, so I don't feel concerned. I there's not a million year that in my I have any thought that these towers can ever come down. I think that's not something you even realize can happen. And as um, I'm filming around, filming the, uh, the everyone, we hear a, a, a loud explosion. And I remember looking up and filming and we see flaming debris uh, uh, falling on the uh, other side of the courtyard. And someone comes in and said another plane has just hit the, the other tower. And that's where, for me, I realized that it's not an accident. Up to that point, I was sure it was an accident, or at least I didn't question the uh, what was happening. And here it seems to be, you know, we're under attack and that seems to be what 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 is happening and everything changes again you know the 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 stress level comes in and because it's it's now you're 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 hunted in a way you you feel like um, a, a a target and 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 so the the stress for me uh i keep it inside but i think it manifests as being frantically uh filming and as a way you know our, our brain protects us in the most strangest way so for me it was making sure i keep filming because it gave me something to do uh made sure i had to uh, clean the lens so i would um, uh, you know the image would be good and once again you know my brother will, will 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 not be disappointed with me and will be proud of the work i do and so it was always trying to it was almost like uh uh, uh, um, I don't know something I would I would repeat almost like a, a Zen kind of thing, you know. So, so I would count when I would film people to make sure I would keep them in frame for about five to ten seconds. So I would count out loud or in my head, and so it was a way to kind of count my nerves and give me something to do. And seeing everything happening through the the that little LCD screen in a way was a, a way to looking at it through a window, you know. And and then unfortunately started the the loud bangs and explosion that we would hear that we would very soon realize it was actually people who were uh, jumping from the, 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 the higher floors. And that was one of the hardest part, you know, because it's, it's absolutely surreal. You don't see it, uh, but you hear it. And the sound represents, you know, uh, the, the death of a person and intellectually to, to realize that every time you hear that, and I would hear it, you know, over 20 times, if not more, you you know that's what that sounds represents, and with that sounds is a life, and what all uh, what the life represents, and it's 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 kind of traumatic to 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 try to 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 to, to understand that. But then, did if you want to pick up on your your end. So, uh, I'm, meanwhile, I'm I I I walk my way back to the firehouse, and it's still empty. It's uh, only. Uh, uh, the proby Tony there, uh, manning the firehouse by himself, um, and there is this monitor, um, and uh, and he's watching TV and he's uh, completely uh, helpless, like like uh, 
like I am. Uh, there is nothing he can do. He, uh, uh, except, uh, except soon, um, uh, one, then two, then three firefighters uh, arrive uh, directly from their home. The lucky one who managed to uh, cross the bridge or the tunnel uh, fast enough um, uh, to, uh, to, to arrive at the firehouse. And, um, and uh, I'm thinking uh, th there is no way I'm going to walk back by myself uh, to, the, to the World Trade Center. Uh, I'm not a firefighter and I'm going to be pushed away again by, uh, by, uh, by cops and FBI agents who are now, you know, all around the, the, um, and, and so I, I waited until, uh, uh, Steve, uh, Rogers arrived, uh, uh, the veteran firefighter, um, in, in the house who right away said, uh, I'm going to pick up my, well, I'm going to go there on my pickup truck. And he, he assembled uh, three of his guy. Um, and, uh, and I said, can I come? Uh, I, I, I need to find out what's going on. And Jules is over there and uh, I cannot stay here by myself doing nothing. And he said, yes. And I was so grateful that he said yes. And um, so I jumped with him and then, and three other guys and he, he drive his pickup truck like a madman down Church Street. Uh, we arrive, we park kind of a, a block or two from the World Trade Center. Uh, the vision uh, of downtown has collapsed already. Uh, the, the South Tower. Oh, yes, yes so, so sorry, so sorry. Uh, while we are at the firehouse, uh, um, the 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 South Tower. Uh, the second one to be hit collapse. Uh, it happened at the same time that I'm, I lose Tony uh, Benenatos, uh, the the probie, who uh, basically rush outside with um, uh, an old retired uh, fire chief, uh, Chief Burns, an incredible character who also managed to come home, even though he was a retired chief. Uh, it just he just saw Tony uh, in the firehouse. Uh, uh, he just picked up some gear and he said, Tony, let, let's go. Let, let's go help people. And that was insane to see, except that I lost them in the crowd. So I came back. Anyway, so here I am in the pickup truck with, uh, with uh, Steve, uh, the veteran of the, of the house, uh, three other guys, and, uh, and, and driving like, like, like a madman. And uh, the, the street is completely white. People are white. Everybody is covered by this dust. Uh, we start to walk uh, toward the, the North Tower, the, the only one left standing. Uh, and when we arrive on VZ Street, there's a the street uh, adjacent to the, to the tower. Um, I, I, I take a bit more time. I don't walk as fast as they do. Um, I don't know. There's something just at that point, so terrifying that I, I don't know why, but my legs are not really walking me anymore. And I'm kind of do a stand up, uh, just stupidly um, filming. Uh, and that's when this gigantic war um, happened. And it was like in those catastrophe movie, you know, you just look up and you see in slow motion, 
the top of this skyscraper falling on you and uh, and uh, the next thing I know I'm, I'm running uh, a few uh, a few feet away to uh, empty uh, fire engine and uh, I go up um, uh, I open the door I and I crawl myself I hear someone uh, behind me uh, getting in just a few seconds after me um, and that's it. I'm just waiting to die because uh, the debris I can hear and feel are falling all around the, the fire engine. Uh, some are falling on it. I, I can I can hear the, the windows exploding and I'm just waiting for the moment of the big one crashing us and uh, remembering, a, you know, as seconds, as Drew said, second would, would feel like minutes, uh, feeling quite... Um, angry, pissed off that uh, I was not dead already. You know, the, the, the waiting for, for your death was so annoying, so, so, so horrible. So you just wanted it to be over. And uh, anyway, so your turn, I guess. You. Yeah. Well, but to, to, to go back, is that, James, is that uh, what, what you're interested in? I don't know if you want us to, to skip. Uh, no, no, no. As long as you have time, I'm, I've, I've set aside as much time as it takes to tell your story today. So please take your time. This is I'm honored that I'm sitting here listening to this. So thank you. No problem. So to go back a little bit. So when um, after the, uh, the, 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 so the, the, the second plane has hit, you know, it's a chaotic time in the, in the lobby. There's um, more and more people coming, more and more people going up, including um, uh, Chief Pfeiffer's brother, uh, Kevin, from Engine 33, a lieutenant who's, who, who, um, who goes to see his brother, and his brother gives, up, uh, gives him the, uh, the assignment to go up. And unfortunately, it will be the last time they will see each other because Chief Pfeiffer's brother would die in the, in the North Tower. And as people are coming in, I see the... Um, the uh, the the the, um, the the preacher of the uh, of the firehouse the uh, the fire oh, chaplain uh, fire chaplain sorry the chaplain uh, um, father judge uh, which I had seen before at other uh, events and things like that but here normally you know he's always kind of a boisterous guy always a smile on his face always a quick word a quick uh, quick smile and here it's absolutely the opposite. He has an incredibly serious demeanor. He looks like he's mumbling. Some people would say he was praying and, and you know, not making eye contact with people. And it was very striking. I remember filming him because he was, you know, he's really a beloved uh, a figure in the, uh, in, the, in the fire department and was always there for people. And I see a lot of the people. And what strikes me is really the, the look on their faces. Um, it's, it's not fear because they're, they're not afraid. But the level of concern, the level of realization of the, 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 how big is the job, how dangerous it's going to be, the realization of the loss of life that has already taken place, that will continue to take place, and the most probable uh, injuries to firefighters as they're going up 80 floors, of st uh, um, 80 floors uh, using the stairs with 50 pounds on the minimum on their, uh, uh, on their shoulders. You could feel that 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 determination, and I'm always amazed. You know, we're we're giant groupies of 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 uh, uh, firefighters, all first responders for fire for, for firefighters in in particular, and to to see that determination, that that courage, that you know what for us makes them kind of the best of of all of us is this determination to regardless of the danger to themselves 
they will be there and they will jump into a, a, a building on fire willingly, eagerly to be able to, 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 to save uh, people's lives. And here I could see it firsthand, even though they knew it was going to be bad, they knew that uh, some of them or themselves had, will, would lose their lives. There was no hesitation on the country. The frustration was that they couldn't get there, up there uh, fast enough. And as things are, 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 are trying to quiet down in a way, even though we're getting, you know, you, at that point you have uh, uh, rumors that, you know, uh, everything has been hit, that the Sears Tower, that Chicago, that Los Angeles, that uh, pretty much everything, you know, World War III has just started because you don't know anything. You're in the middle of the, uh, the eye of the storm, you're cut off from every, uh, everything. I think people in uh, watching it on television anywhere else in the world knew much more than we did. And so when um, things have quieted down in the lobby, most people are, uh, firefighters have gone up, the chief are mingling around trying to find their strategy. And um, and I remember I'm filming Chief Pfeiffer, he's the first chief on, on site, and, and so pretty consequent. And as I'm filming him, we hear a very loud roar once again coming from above us. And I remember we're all, all, all of us are looking up and suddenly, everyone scatters and so I follow them and I see that they run uh, into a little entrance that would lead to another I think five world trade and it's because that sound is almost like the sound of death you know it's kind of that freight train of death coming towards you 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 know it's coming you have no idea what's happening but you know this is bad and so as I follow everyone we start going up a uh, an escalator I remember just stopping and, and saying okay what am I running uh, you know I don't know what this is but this is death and I'm going to die and unfortunately, it's the sad reality of it. And I remember being surprised as the kind of the Zen-like um, uh, uh, calm that I had in my mind. Uh, again, time is completely distended. I have the impression this lasts for half an hour, even though it's only a few a few seconds. But I remember that long conversation in my head of, okay, I'm about to die. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of pissed off at that and sad because, you know, I have so many people I, I love that uh, I'll be missing and all that. But in my mind, it's almost like that's, you know, that, um, I know, a door opens and, and kind of, okay, I'm going to walk through that and hell, we'll see what happens after. I remember having a prayer saying, you know, now is the time. I'm not a believer. So I think, you know, I could use a sign, uh, you know, hedging my bets, you guess. Uh, yeah, I couldn't hurt. And, um, you know, no, no atheist in a, in a foxhole, as they say, yes, it happens. But um, you, and as that roar is coming and the darkness in, in, engulfs us and, and, and that dust or, or fog, I don't know what it is, is covering us. It's really kind of, you know, we're, we're suddenly crossing into the, uh, the underworld, the abyss, the, you know, Dante's Inferno. It's what it looks like. And then that incredible quietness, almost like, you know, during a first heavy snow in a, in a city where all the sounds of the, of the streets disappears. It's exactly that. Everything is muffled, everything. And then, you know, like a uh, like, um, sound suddenly comes in and you hear, you know, little sounds. You see someone uh, uh, saying, is everybody OK? And of course, I'm the first one to pipe up because I'm afraid they're going to leave me behind. I say, I'm OK, you know, kind of, uh, you know, desperately crying in a way. And, you know, I turn on the, uh, the big floodlight I have on my camera, which ends up being good because the chiefs normally don't have all, uh, a lot of equipment on them as they're you know, downstairs. And so they, someone sees the light and say, well, you with the light come downstairs, come help us. And what I would discover is that they, they had just found the, the body of, uh, of Father Judge and they were trying to, to, to see if he had a pulse. And unfortunately, 
uh, he had died, um, probably uh, being hit by a, a piece of debris that um, that broke his neck. And so I think he, he died uh, uh, very quickly there. But unfortunately, there was nothing we could do. And so very quickly, they decide we have no idea what's happening. Uh, we have no idea. To, it's it, the, the, the South Tower has collapsed. As far as we're concerned, it's probably a partial collapse in the North Tower. And that's why Chief Pfeiffer immediately doesn't hesitate, doesn't... Uh, in about uh, five seconds after that um, that huge explosion or roar or whatever it was, says, "Okay, uh, uh, battalion one to to all units in, in in Tower One, evacuate the building and make sure it's repeated, make sure it's understood." And once he's, he's, he's repeated it about two three times and make sure it's been repeated, then then he says, "Okay, we need to get out of here. It's it's dangerous." Um, the, some of the chiefs um, start to carry the, uh, the the body of a um, father judge, and we go up that escalator that would lead to the um, right to the uh, West Street right there. And but it's we still see debris is falling. Uh, people are still uh, jumping, and it's still very dangerous. So Chief Pfeiffer says, "Okay, we're going to go to." Uh, use the footbridge that links um, uh, the uh, World Trade Center to the financial center and we'll be safer because we'll be protected to, from whatever falls. And the, ch- the other chief says, okay, we'll stay here. We'll wait for you to make sure it's safe. So here comes that kind of very frustrating moment where we do go back and forth where now I watch it. I want to scream at the television knowing that there is a hidden clock um, you know, that is, uh, that is running there. And as I, I go there with the chief, with his um, uh, chauffeur, Ed Fahey, uh, and someone else, you know, we arrive on the other side. Uh, it seems to be okay. And, and we try to radio the guys back and say, okay, it's safe. Come there. We no, no, no news, no nothing. We go back over there once again. Again, it's been frustrating, but, you know, we don't know anything at that point. They're not here. We go back again, go down. And here we come out on the other side of the World Trade Center. To a scene which is completely, as Gédéon said, is completely different. It's like kind of a nuclear winter. You have ash on the on the floor. You have pieces of debris, papers everywhere. And even though I film what looks like the uh, pieces and the and and debris of the uh, of the South Tower, in my head I, re- I I refuse to recognize that. We've had no information that said the towers come down or they were on the radios or mayday, mayday, mayday. That's it. And when I look at it, I'm again, I'm lying to myself saying, oh, no, Wall Street, uh, the second tower is, is probably here. It's behind the smoke or from where I am. I cannot see it. That's fine. And then the chief uh, goes back to the secondary um, uh, uh, um, position he had given at the beginning and, and to regroup with the, with the chief. We're in the shadow of the of one World Trade. I'm still cleaning my camera. I'm still doing things and kind of disoriented, not knowing what's happening, and but still following the chief. And as the chief is called by um, by, by other firefighters, there we're about to go back into World Trade Center. As you know, there's more people up there, uh, and more people we need to save. And as we do, I think about two or three paces, we hear that roar again. Except this time I can look up and I see that kind of mushroom of the tower uh, falling on us. Once again, I think uh, first reflex running like crazy. Uh, I think I've, I've, uh, I, I, I broke an Olympic record uh, how fast I was running. But realized that I was trying to outrun a 120-story building in the middle of the street was found a little stupid. And... As I'm running, I see two trucks there. And I remember a conversation we had over the summer with the firefighter that said, you know, sometime when you have collapses, 
pockets will be created and you have to look for certain things you know uh, uh, that could maybe sustain a pocket when you have a collapse so it's crazy the kind of things you remember in the heat of mo moment and so I see these two trucks and I say well that seems like a good idea so I put myself on the floor my camera is on the side it's still running uh, lights is still on because I forgot uh, about it and that's where you see these images of that giant uh, um, uh, cloud that comes and then it's sucked back in and the papers and in the middle of all that I hear someone who jumps on top of me and and as debris is falling all around and and I hear the debris uh, uh, hit I hit I, I feel it a little bit the, the the person on top of me being hit also and once again here I'm absolutely not zen I'll have to to, to admit I'm exactly like my brother I'm pissed off like okay what the hell happened I su I survived I'm supposed to have survived I cannot have another one now first one I'm okay you know I could I could deal with it this is unfair I'm out of the building. How is this happening to me? Well, you asked for and, a sign, so. <laughs> yeah, well, that was, yeah, that was, that was much less, uh, charming in my plea to, uh, to uh, hire you after that. But, you know, but here I am. And, and again, the strange thing is sound completely disappears again after that. In that moment, which again, my head is probably seven minutes long, even though it's, you know, 12 seconds or something. It's, you know, it's very, no sound or nothing. The person on top of me gets up. And I hear a, a voice and, okay, get up. And I recognize it's Chief Pfeiffer. We, we, we get up because the question he had seen me, I'm in a T-shirt and a pair of jeans. He needs a bunker gear and he sees, he says, okay, what is that moron doing in the middle of the street? And, you know, in a, it looks like beachwear. So come on. Let, so he decided to, because he felt that I was his probie in a way. And we have a very strong link, uh, Chief Pfeiffer and I, which we still see to this day each other very often. We spoke every week, you know, he's, He's the man who saved my life. So, um, but I remember going when we he gets up. We don't see anything. There was clouds everywhere. We hear gunshots, which was very uh, uh, frightening because here we hear pops all over the place, and it's like, oh, okay, that's it. Now they're in uh, terrorist or whatever it is are in the streets with AK-47s. It's the end of the world. We will be shot like rabbits. And and what we would discover after it was actually a munition. Uh, in inside of a police truck that uh, had caught fire and so the, the munition was popping all over the place and so but when you don't know that and you know it's kind of and so after that I I, I found a, a deli uh, right off where I go with Chief Pfeiffer and I'm no longer in any uh, you know shape to to film anything I give a call I think to my uh, fiance and 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 tell her that we're okay. That uh, I don't know where Gideon is, but I'm sure he'll be fine. And you know, I'm a little shook up. We're we're okay. And after that, I think I film sporadically, but I'm I'm in no way shape uh, able to do that. I all I do is look for Gideon, which, funnily enough or strangely enough, was actually probably 50 feet away from me when when the second tower collapsed. Except we went in different directions, and fortunately, both survived. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm, I've, I've just jumped into this, uh, fire engine, um, when, when hearing the, the tower collapsing right in, in, on top of me and I, I can, I heard and I saw, uh, someone else, a guy, uh, jumping into the, the engine truck, uh, right behind me. Uh, and I guess we just waited for a moment to, to come and uh, for a big piece of the tower to, to crash us. And this moment, uh, crazy enough, never, never happened. Um, 
unfortunately, some people who had found refuge uh, behind uh, the truck, uh, the engine where we were in the back, didn't got so lucky because uh, a, a big piece fell on them. But we we got okay. Uh, and I would later discover that the guy who jumped behind me was uh, an FBI uh, special agent um, who had previously already saved 20 people from uh, one World Trade Center and five World Trade Center. I mean, the guy had been already risking his life saving uh, 20 people, uh, burned and, and injured, uh, found himself outside um, when the second tower collapsed. So this guy, me, with a, a camera jumping into a, an engine truck and just decided to follow me. And, 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 and so the noise stopped. The, the, the tower uh, has collapsed. We, we're still alive. Uh, and this guy, uh, I don't know who he is, I will later discover again that he's a special agent, an FBI, um, tells me, all right, let's get out. And we get out, except we don't get out on the sidewalk. It's not the sidewalk anymore. It's, it's trucks. It's, I mean, it's cars on fire. Um, there is nothing flat uh, uh, on which you walk. Uh, it's just pieces of stones and whatever pieces of the building. So it's um, and uh, and as Jules, I have a, a light on my camera, and we we manage to make a few steps, and and suddenly I hear uh, this guy screaming at me, saying, "Come back, come back! You have the light. Uh, I found someone. Help me!" And I turn I, I turn the light, the camera. I did not realize he was not uh, uh, with me anymore, and 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 this guy again saved someone else. Uh, on those few steps that we, that uh, that we when we got out of the of the engine, he had found someone else that he was carrying by himself. Except this guy that he found that was hurt was quite heavy, and he definitely needed help. So, uh, so of course we each had one arm of this hurt uh, guy, uh, uh, you know, with us and with uh, the, the the light of the camera, we were able to navigate. And it took us a, a block or two to find help. And uh, and I just then just walked back to the firehouse. And and each step to the firehouse was this kind of uh, shock um, and, and this uh, this question, you know, like, 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 you know, where is Jules? How could he possibly survive that? Where are the guys of the firehouse? What's going on? And... Uh, and unfortunately, I arrive at the firehouse, and the firehouse is uh, almost empty, and there is suddenly no word from Jules. In fact, guys from uh, guys would arrive almost one by one, like driplets of water here and there, and I would ask them if they had seen Jules. I mean, he was with them; uh, they, mu they must have seen him, and uh, and they were not, you know. Uh, they said no, no, sorry, uh, no, 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 Jules. We don't know where he is. And uh, anyway, it took uh, it took uh, almost uh, almost over two hours for Jules to uh, to 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 come back. And uh, and that was uh, yeah, that was the best reunion. <laughs> yeah, because what what happened is that after I stopped filming, I would 
kind of um, go back and forth to all the streets I could find and ask every firefighter, you know, have you seen uh, the guys from Engine 7 and Ladder 1? And, you know, a little French guy with a camera. And what was infuriating is that none of them would meet my eyes. And so I thought that was a bad sign. None of them would, would, would sustain uh, looking into my eyes and said, no, 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 sorry. And, you know, so I had a bad feeling that this was going to be that I unfortunately knew the answer that they were all dead. And so I, I dragged my feet. It took me a long time. It took me two hours to come back to the to the firehouse. On the way, I found uh, guys from the engine who's, uh, who were, I was asking, but did you see Gideon? He said, no, no, he was not with us. I didn't, didn't see him. And we finally arrived back at the firehouse. And you have the scene that um, that uh, that is in the film because uh, what you have to understand is that one of our best friends was working not too far. And as soon as this happened, knew we were there, came to see us, uh, Dory, and, um, and I was with Gideon in the kitchen. And when I arrived, I put my camera down. And he picks it up and he films the moment where we, we, we see each other and we, we fall into each other's arms. And I think, uh, you know, yes, we're probably uh, 28 and, uh, and 31 at that time. But when I see these images, we're six and nine years old, I think. And um, I think there is that, that moment. And still, uh, remember when I, I listened to it uh, in French, I said, you know, I filmed everything. Don't worry. And uh, I, I, I have all the tapes. Again, it's, uh, you know, you go through crazy things when, you know, you're, 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 you're in a traumatic experience, I think. But what was amazing and was well, we had survived and, and that was unbelievable. But the entire firehouse, one by one, all these firefighters, all these friends that we had, we, we, we had made suddenly all came back one after the other, as improbable as it was. And the last one being the probie. Talk about reality being strange in this fiction. It, it, you know, you, you, it would have been a movie. It would have thought to be a very bad script. But, you know, here was that the, the, the last guy that we were missing was, the, was Tony. And he came back um, last and everyone was OK in the firehouse, uh, which was, you know, complicated because then that, um, that the, the, the search part, you know, uh, started. And which was the most um, difficult thing of all, because, you know, people were fine the first day, but that was it. And you kept hoping. It said it has to be hundreds, if not thousands of people alive. It's, it has to. And, and the more we dug, because we then went back with the guys and, and, and filmed as they were as they were digging, sometimes digging ourselves, they were there were no one to be fine. And then, unfortunately, it became not a rescue, but a re recovery effort, which personally, I think, was more complicated um, psychologically uh, because I think on September 11, and that's just a personal uh, way I feel, but then on September 11, I was, you know, I was more reacting. I was not, uh, I was reacting to what's happening. Uh, no time to think, no time to really uh, go through psychologically what's happening. But the re recovery effort as you're digging and as you're, you know, you're, you're looking for the remains of, of people, you have too much time on your hand and you have too much time to process what you're seeing and what's your, what you're feeling, what you're smelling. And that's a, that's a complicated thing, at least personally for, 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 for me it was, but, but I think what sustained us was the, of, of individuals who are willing to risk their life for each other and for us. And here, even though, you know, the, 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 the place, even though we didn't know at the time, you know, was full of dangerous gases and horrible things that we all breathed in, 
all they wanted to do is is dig further, is dig longer. We would have to pull guys out by the uh, from the piles, and the chief saying, "No, no, you have to take a break. You've been digging for 12 hours nonstop. Go back to the firehouse, take a two-hour rest. Then you can come back." And people were almost fighting; they didn't want to leave. It was really impressive to see how you know New Yorkers. You know, you, we're not the nicest people in the world. You know, try to take a, steal a cab from another New Yorker. You, I think, you know, a crowbar will come out to brass knuckles. But here, at that moment, that spirit of we're all in this together, to see all New Yorkers uh, caring for each other, to see everyone, we were all in the same boat, and to see the entire world was like that. But that, I think, that drove what we wanted to do and what we, I think we succeeded in doing in the end is to show that what we had seen at the moment where the worst of humanity is, is revealed, that's terrorism, which is, I think, you know, the, the basest uh, human instinct of just instilling terror to other. The best uh, of all of us is there. That kindness, that courage, that that willingness to say no and to put your life on the line to help others is was present everywhere you looked. It was present in the firefighters. Uh, selflessly going up to, to uh, uh, and risking their life. It was in the people coming down the stairs and, and, and carrying each other, sometimes 80 flights, carrying other people. It was every normal New Yorker coming to their firehouse, coming to everyone. It was the steel workers who all came and, and, and worked on the site. It was that sense of humanity, that wave of, of saying no to the horror. And and that was, I think, what I keep from all that is is, is that giant lesson of humanity that uh, this has taught me. Jadio, anything to add to that? No, no, no. Uh, Jules has said it uh, perfectly. It's um, uh, uh, yes, no. At the end of the day, um, tw twenty years later. Uh, it's you cannot help but be eternally eternally grateful to uh, to this spirit that uh, for Jules and I is embodied in the first responders and and the firefighters because whoever you have uh, in the firehouse. Uh, uh, it's like it's like a club. It's like a it's like a a, a class uh, with your schoolmates. It's like a, it's like an insane uh, mix of people. Uh, uh, and and but there is uh, there is something very special about us because um, they, despite all their differences and their fights, sometimes. Uh, they, yeah, they, they have a higher calling uh, to be, to, 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 to witness this higher calling, to actually see people ready to be uh, better, to, to, to go beyond what normal people um, you know, ask of themselves on a daily basis uh, to see such courage. Uh, there is nothing more inspiring, um, and it's, it's true. It's uh, this, this is what uh, this is what uh, uh, basically uh, 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 cure a, a trauma uh, uh, or, or cure a, a feeling down. Uh, 
or cure any any moment where we we thinking the 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 world is too insane and too crazy. It's just to just for Jules and I, or, or uh, if, if I may, Jules, it's just to go back to this day and the days that followed uh, to be able to to have witnessed the best in humanity, as Drew said. And it is, it, yeah, it is embodied in those crazy, insane guys who, and women who live in a firehouse. Uh, yeah, if you, if, if, if you are an alien and you arrive on planet Earth and you want to see uh, the best of humanity, yeah, uh, uh, go, to, go to the places of work of first responders. Uh, Maybe not go to uh, to uh, to see where uh, politicians live. <laughs> go to a firehouse. <laughs> you, 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 you'll know you'll know what we're about to to, to do. We, we, we'll see, you, you'll see the best of us. Uh, and um, so this, yeah, you, you you have the trauma on one hand, and, and and the the effect and the damages. But if you have seen what we've seen, uh, then this will heal, or, or will at least help me. Um, deal with the trauma in, in the best way. And, and so 20 years later, so grateful to have seen it. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing coming from a first responder's lens, so being a fireman and being so proud, because I see that, what you're talking about and everyone else, you don't see it in yourself, of course, because that would be narcissism. But, <laughs> but you know, you, you recognize it in, in the men and women that you work alongside. But one of the things that I've always said about this, about the Paris attacks, you know, is you know, all the obviously similar events, the London attacks, is the heroism of the civilians. Just like you said, just just the exact, there's no perfect analogy than Chief Pfeiffer jumping on your back because yeah. you're there in your beachwear, still, mm-hmm. you know, up, up, up front, being prepared to, to assist, to document, to all these things. And the stories of heroism of regular people that worked in the world trade you know, just now, this this uh, invasion of the government building, I, I see stories of heroism coming out of that. That had, you know, they weren't expecting a group of people to invade their office. So, I think that I don't know if you had the same, but one of the most powerful things I saw uh, around September last year, 2020, is as a strange year as it were as it was, was the phrase "I miss 912." And I think people identify that day just like you said as the best of the humanity. All colors, creeds, races, religions, sexual orientations came together to fight evil and to do good. And, and unfortunately, it's sad, but it's always how it happens. We saw it after uh, uh, the attacks of November 13. We saw it even when Notre Dame was burning. Unfortunately, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're complicated human beings uh, that it takes, unfortunately, a tragedy to remind of us the best of us. So hopefully it will uh, it can happen without something traumatic happening, but at least the good part it's it's in us. So already that's the first part is there. It's uh, our ability to to love and to 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 be better and to and, and to sacrifice ourselves is in all of us. And uh, and I think at least that's a that's pretty good silver lining. Absolutely. Well, you you mentioned Paris. Before we move on to there, um, I do want to talk about the mental domino effect and the physical domino effect because as we were talking before we started recording and it's it's a topic that i've talked about already on the show we're losing hundreds more 
men and women post 9-11. There's, you know, we lost 343 firefighters specifically, and I know we're getting close to that number now in post 9-11 illness. Um, that's not including law enforcement, as you mentioned, steel workers, civilians. So what have you seen being literally, you couldn't have gotten any closer to that event and being so close to the city of New York and FDNY, NYPD, um, the last 20 years, the ripple effect of that horrendous day? Well, I think everything goes back to that day. And as I said it, you know, that day, you could have told everyone who was there, that was between the police officers, the fire department, everyone who was working on the recovery, you could have told them, you know, this is what we're breathing in is deadly, it's going to be bad. They would have said, I don't care, I need to save people. The problem I have is that, unfortunately, politicians abandoned everyone who was there that day, all the first responders, when they refused to take care of their, uh, uh, of ensure that their health would be, uh, would be, uh, would be taken care of, their, their medical bills, all that. And to think that civilians needed to kind of rise up and, and go and speak at the Congress and at the Senate to plead and to beg for firefighters and, and first responders altogether to have the medical coverage they needed, I think is a shame. And it needed to be done. It was done several times. John Stewart in particular was a, a, a great proponent of that and, and helped a lot with that. But, you know, I've, I've always been, and I'm speaking personally, I've always had a problem with politicians using uh, 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 tragedies to their own advantage. And the fact of everyone saying, oh, we will never forget, we'll celebrate them forever. And then, you know, a month later or a year later when uh, they need to actually pay a little bit because our friends are dying and uh, because of uh, they were there and saving people. And, and now it's like, well, really, are they really that sick? And do they really need to go there? I think it's an absolute shame and it's quite disgusting. So every time we can point it out, that let's, you know, it's one thing to say, let's never forget. It's another to actually doing it and putting your mouth where you're uh, putting your words where your mouth is, is, you know, take care of these people. These people are here for us every single day throughout the world. Right now, thousands of firefighters are saving people around the world and in the U.S. also. So let's remember that, you know, it, it doesn't need a, a, a tragedy like 9-11. Unfortunately, that's what highlighted the amazing work that these people do every single day. But these people are, 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 are to be cherished and are to be protected. And everyone who, who gave, you know, a little bit of, uh, of themselves on that day needs to be, to, to be taken care of and all that. And it's, it's, I think it's shameful that it takes so long and that we have a fight every five years to, 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 to re-up the uh, Zagroda bill. And, uh, and I think it's, you know, it's enough. You know, we, 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 we're, we're better than this. If you want to talk about the trauma and, you know, yeah, no, of course, of course, um, it, it, it was interesting to, to see the, the, I, I, we understand your, your show is about, of course, all first responders. And, and so please, uh, uh, allow us to apologize as, as we are firefighters groupies and, and our experiences <laughs> with firefighters only. So we wish we could talk about police and, and 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 uh, and construction workers and 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 everybody else who came, uh, but but our experiences with firefighters and so uh, and and uh, with firefighters we we saw a tremendous change in their culture. Uh, yeah, yeah. We, when we arrived at the firehouse, when we started filming in the summer of two thousand and one, we 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 quickly realized that. Uh, 
the, the culture in the firehouse is, is a culture of of, of being a, the, the biggest macho on the planet. I mean, uh, uh, you might discover at the end of the day that they're big teddy bears, but, uh, you know, the, the way they talk, it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> and and so, so that, that the way they, it, it, that, that's the way it was, you know, you, you, you don't ask for help. You, you, whatever happened stays in the firehouse. If you have a problem, you talk about it among yourself. You never, never, never ask for help. Uh, except when something as big as 9-11 happened, you need to ask for help. And those guys didn't. And we saw first, yeah, they, they didn't at first. And we saw psychologically how damaging uh, it was, not just in the firehouse, but in every single firehouses, and um, uh, and and people were uh, ringing the alarm, uh, saying, you know, if you don't talk about it, if you don't go through the the normal, if you don't recognize it as true trauma, uh, which has some serious mental and physical. Um, uh, effect, you, you're going to pay a, a heavy price. And at first, uh, yeah, many did. Uh, but as years passed, we saw the culture in the FDNY change for the better. And we saw those guys starting to understand and, and talk to professionals, uh, help uh, each other. Uh, I mean, there's still the, you know, the, the basement firehouse therapy that, that, uh, that is the most amazing one. Of course, you know, you have an issue, uh, you talk to the guys, uh, no one else understand better than, but it's not enough. Um, and, and it, this was uh, huge to, to see this change over the, the years. And I think 20 years later, um, the, the culture is, is now very much understanding of what trauma is and means and and the horrible uh, effect of post-traumatic disorder. Uh, so they, they, they're not taking that very seriously. So, so that's a good thing that came out. Yeah, it, I think that as we could have described that before 9-11, you had kind of that Superman complex, you know, nothing can hit, uh, can uh, can get me, I'm, I'm stronger than anything. And I think through that and through the department realizing that and having, you know, these people are now uh, um, uh, tested uh, physically, just uh, like all survivors of 9-11, not only physically for the, uh, you know, cancers and all the horrible things we, we uh, diseases, unfortunately, a lot of us are, are suffering from, but also uh, uh, mentally to make sure that uh, everyone is okay, that everyone who needs to talk to a professional a therapist, uh, a psychiatrist, whatever it is, is there. And it took, should they always write, it, it took some time. But I think it's a it's a better department because of it now. Yeah, absolutely. And I had uh, Nancy Carbone on the show from Friends of Firefighters, and what they're doing, yeah. I think, is another great asset to the FDNY. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, then, yeah, I I know we're already an hour and a half in, and we're still in New York in 2001. So, um, and there's no rush on my end at all. I mean, I, I'm I, it's such a powerful story, and I I want to give you the time to tell it properly. For you personally, firstly, what was that journey from that event yourself like? And then you know, the last, the next time I really you know, saw your work come up was obviously after the Paris attacks and that beautiful documentary that you made, which I think you know, it is one of my fi- favorite 
documentary pieces ever. And, and it's just, I mean, obviously it's the people, it's the way you shot it. It's again, the, um, the fact that you didn't sensationalize any of the deaths or anything like that, but lead me through th- that, that period between the two and your own fir- first exposure to that attack as, you know, a Frenchman. Well, that you know, after uh, doing 9/11, which we, you know, in, in a way, we we kept doing over and over because we 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 did many versions of it, and every year, every five years, then we wanted to 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 add to it to follow these guys. We did a, a, a few documentaries. Um, um, we did um, a one on the uh, four hour on the White House chief of staff, which was kind of a departure of our traditional kind of fly on the wall. But we wanted to try different things. And same thing, always the the the, the way is, is finding, you know, uh, uh, kind of the person behind the uh, the uniform or behind the, the title, what it's like to be, you know, White House chief of staff, the closest person to a president, uh, even than, these, uh, than the first lady. Then we did one on, on the um, uh, directors of the CIA, which is kind of linked a little bit, you know, towards terrorism but then um as uh, as we were finishing the one on the cia we we're editing we we're in new york we receive a, a, a phone call of friends saying you know do you know what is happening in paris right now it was friday november 13 2015 and um as the first uh, 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 news was trying to trickling in. They were talking about bombs at the stadium and then uh, uh, shootings at cafes. Um, immediately, we called our parents who, were, who, are, who, who live uh, in, in Paris, who we knew were in the neighborhood around the 10th and 11th uh, arrondissement. And so here we had a very strange uh, reverse of what had happened on, on September 11. On September 11, they were the ones in, in Paris uh, agonizing at home and watching on television live as as the towers collapse and being sure that their their sons had just died in front of them. And to answer your question from before, it's only the two of us. It's only uh, we're the only siblings. And um, here it was us watching television, not being able to reach our parents, knowing they were in the neighborhood and freaking out like they had before. And you know, we were born and raised in Paris. We spent, you know, 16 and 19 years there. So, and, and we go back there often. So it's still, you know, it's, it's, it feels very close to home. And to see that, to see on television, that helplessness that you feel of watching on television, not being able to do anything, not knowing anything, uh, we were devastated like everyone. And we then started, of course, in the, in the coming days after that, hearing the stories of heroism, but where, uh, uh, the, it took a turn is that actually Chief Pfeiffer, so the chief who saved my, my life on 9-11, who I'm incredibly close with, became um, after 9-11 the chief of the uh, counterterrorism for the fire department of New York, uh, gave me a call about a few weeks later and said, can you, uh, Jules, can you arrange a, uh, a trip that I could go to uh, Paris in, in a few months with heads of counterterrorism from different fire departments in, in, uh, in, in the U.S. and a couple of FBI people. And we'd like to meet everyone in the French depart- uh, um, government, uh, first responders, hospitals, fire police, SWAT teams, etc., to uh, see the lessons we could take from uh, that attack, what worked, what didn't work, and when, unfortunately, not if, but when it happens, we can be ready and, and put things in place that will help us. 
And so we found ourselves in March of 2016 going to Paris. I think I, I, we had a delegation of about 12 people. And we went to, um, I had organized to, to meet with from the uh, Ministry of the Interior, the Prime Minister, the heads of the, of the police, of, uh, of the SWAT teams, of the fire department, of the um, uh, EMS, etc., etc. And as all these professionals together were talking and, 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 and describing what had happened, uh, we were kind of, uh, I, I was kind of the, uh, the unofficial uh, um, uh, uh, translator. translator, here we go. And, and so we discovered all of these stories reminded me of what we had lived through on 9-11, the heroism of the first responders, the heroism of the, uh, uh, of the civilians. And after a couple of months thinking about it, saying, but, you know, we have to, to tell that story, but it's a very complicated story. We're, and again, we know that, you know, telling a story like this is, is full of kind of pitfalls of, you know, we have to do it in the, in the right way and be respectful and, and not be gratuitous, just like we had done with 9-11. And so we started first to, to talk to the, 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 the big uh, organization, the French government, the, the head of the fire department and the head of the police, which I had met through these, uh, these um, uh, trips that I had taken. So, and, and they all said, okay, they all understood where we were coming from. They had all seen our 9-11 projects and the others that we had done and, 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 and decided to do us and started about a, a long eight months process of starting to, to get to the civilians in particular and the local firefighters that had participated that night and been there. And it took, it took a while. Uh, it was, it, it, it was made easier by the fact that Jodeo and I were survivors and so in ourselves, we were all part of this very strange uh, a club where nobody, nobody wants to be a member of, but we are, you know, they, they're the survivors of terrorism. And I think in the way that we, when we met them, we mostly didn't talk about we wanted uh, what we wanted to do or their stories. We talked about our story, where we came from, what we had lived through, the trauma, uh, what how that trauma had, uh, um, had, had changed over the years, because... For them, they were watching it with very young eyes in, in a way. Their trauma was still a year old, which is nothing. And so we're looking at us with about, at that time, 16 years on, on a traumatic experience, were, were really enabled them to trust us and understand and speak to them in a way that others could not. And so uh, we then decided, okay, but, you know, all these people are, have agreed for us to do it, but where, how do we do it? And that's why we came up to do it with Netflix, because... It was kind of the safest place to, to, that will do it justice. We didn't see that documentary knowing that it was already to be at least three hours long to do it on a normal network that would then, you know, had, would have to cut for commercials or for all that. That was not the, the, the forum for that. What the platform that we thought we needed was that for people to watch it when they wanted to stop, when they wanted to be able to watch the, uh, the, to, uh, the second parts of it three months later, six months later, two years later, and not to be rushed to watch it and, and to uh, maybe a broadcaster who kind of uh, wanted to, to do the best rating numbers. That was not what it was all, all about. And so we, we, we managed to, 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 and we're very grateful that Netflix gave us the freedom to, to do that, uh, kind of a, almost a talking head documentary with very little images, and trust us to say a compelling story that 
that film is kind of the 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 other the other end of the spectrum from our original 9/11, you know, which we started. This is 16 years later. We're much more mature, but in a way, we're treating the exact same subject in two different ways. The first one is with the images that we film, as we were protagonists ourselves and inside. The other is more a devoir de mémoire, a a, 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 a duty of memory, and so which relies more on on the words uh, of these people, and once again, the courage of the people that uh, uh, that gave the, us their testimony and were candid enough to talk about what they lived through, the civilians, the firefighters, the, the SWAT members, to see that humanity, that same best of us that comes out, uh, was so touching that um, that we wanted, we knew we, we needed to tell that story. But it's very complementary to, to our 9-11 documentary in a way. Yeah, I mean, it was it was so incredibly powerful. And like you said, the courage, because I mean, I have this on the show today with the courage that you have to relive that horrific moment to tell the story, knowing that it's going to help so many people out there. It was the same thing. And I obviously want to want to get you guys to lead us through that day, at least an overview of it. But the courage that it took to lose a wife, you know, to, to see a friend that didn't make it, you know, and then to sit there and tell the story. um, and then also, you know, we'll get into it as well, but but some of the the humor in it amongst all that death and destruction, you know, and we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to that point. But I mean, it was just, it, again, it completely parallel what I saw in 9-11, what I saw in 7-7, you know, with the reports of that and the kind of stiff, you know, British, British upper lip, um, which I love, stiff upper lip, like screw you terrorists for going back to work, made me very proud to be British. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, but you saw that community, you saw people banding together, you saw, as with 9-11, the firefighter in a station waiting for possibly another bullshit call to come in and all of a sudden the worst case scenario and clearly as with you know the the men and women in fdny and you know, the surrounding agencies and then the same in paris they clearly were prepared they'd done the training they kept themselves fit so as a responder it was amazing that when they were dropped right in the middle of it that they had to collect themselves but then they went to work and through that lens you know it it to me they walked the walk there's, there's no better description than that no it's true and so to to go maybe through for for the people who read don't really know what happened it's 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 quite of crazy because so it's a friday night um mid november and it's it's a night where it's actually um exceptionally warm and and wonderful outside so Parisian as Parisians are, are most of them are at a cafe, uh, drinking a beer, having a cigarette. All the terraces are full. It's nice, you know, full of life. We're probably arguing about politics or whatever it is. But and you have a uh, exhibition match, a soccer uh, a match playing at the, uh, the the biggest stadium in in Paris, and seventy thousand players, and the match is is going great. And suddenly, a suicide bomber detonates uh, his explosive vest uh, in the middle of the in in front of the stadium outside. Um, no one knows exactly at that point what is happening. They don't even believe. They don't know if it's a terrorist attack, if it's just you know an accident or you know whatever. And so the French president is is there. The French president is in the stadium with the uh, his German counterpart, um, and. Over the next, I think, 33 minutes, uh, 
three groups of terrorists would attack, um, three would detonate their suicide uh, bombs, uh, suicide vest um, outside the, the stadium. Six different cafes uh, would be uh, shot by machine guns uh, by a team of, of roaming terrorists that would drop uh, them off uh, from their car, spray an entire terrorist, go back in the car, go to the next one. And at the end of that, three more terrorists arriving at a very busy uh, uh, music hall where a, a concert of an uh, American rock band is taking place. And we'll start shooting in a, in a theater where there is about 3,000 uh, 3, people. All that within 33 seconds of each other. So, so imagine on a perspective of first responders where you first have reports of bombs in one location. Then you're getting uh, uh, shootings at another, then at another, then at another, then another, then another, then another. And you had that sense that it's never going to stop. Every time a code would come in, a different area was under attack by a different terrorist uh, uh, group uh, uh, commando. And it was that, 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 that craziness that on the part of the first responders, police and fire department, was incompli uh, incredibly complicated. And yet, as usual, would uh, rush to the scene and, and you see in the documentary the, 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 the incredible work of the, uh, of the firefighters who are the first responders, the first one who arrived. And even a shooting is happening are, you know, were risking their lives to, to, to do tourniquets and to try to staunch the bleeding and all that. And then what is very, uh, uh, the, the accumulation of all of that is at that uh, uh, music concert where, you know, you have 3,000 people in there. Three guys come in with machine guns and 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 and, and shoot indiscriminately at the at the at the crowd. And again, you see these civilians, these stories of them protecting themselves, protecting uh, uh, someone weaker than them, protecting uh, uh, the, uh, complete strangers, either by escaping, either by playing dead and covering them with your body as 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 people are dying all around you. The, the, the terrorists will then proceed to take 11 hostages and wait for the police, uh, um, lock themselves in a long but very narrow hallway with these 11 um, hostages. And that, host, and that hostage negotiation will then take place. And when you talk about the humor, what we wanted to show is that humor is, is a very important part, I think, of healing. And, but it's also a way that, you know, uh, uh, our brain kind of uh, uh, enables us to, to protect ourselves. Humor sometimes comes out when you're stressed, you know, you laugh and all that. And these, these moments where you can think that, you know, how can you even think about laughing when two terrorists are pointing AK-47s uh, at your heads, that they're playing with the detonator where you can see on their vest full of explosive and they're holding you your feet away from them. It's in these moments that the, the crazy, uh, surreal reality happens. And here it happens when the SWAT team, amazing people, whether it is in, in the US or in France, but here in Paris, these, these SWAT team members who you know, know it's going to be complicated. It's a narrow hallway. You have 11 hostages. You have two terrorists armed to the teeth, AK-47 explosives. You're going to have to breach at some point, which is, you know, it's going to be bad for you and for the hostages. And yet... Uh, as they try to negotiate to buy some time, the negotiator has the thickest southern accent you can imagine. And so comes that surreal moment where 
he tries to give the number to call on the cell phone to negotiate and all that, except no one understands him. And the, the hostages have to repeat for about 15 times the number. And it becomes kind of a sketch that you would think comes out of Saturday Night Live if it was not so terrible. All this is to say that you find these moments where you look at the documentary and laugh and almost be all ashamed. No, no, I should not laugh. But <laughs> it the hostages themselves and the people there that will tell that crazy moment when you think life is going to, 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 to be over in an instant, a moment of laughter, a smile, a twinkle in the eye, holding someone's hand or just an, a, a square inch of flesh in yours can mean the difference between life and death, mentally and physically. And so what we wanted to, to see in the, in, in the candidness of these incredible uh, um, testimonies of not only because they're talking about their courage, but for some, because they're talking about that, yes, the terrorist pointed a, a machine gun at his head and said, go get my, 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 uh, my bag full of charges. If not, I'll kill you and I'll kill your friend. And he says, but I go there and I pick up the bag and I feel guilty because I'm giving them more ammo, but I don't want to die. And I think to have the honesty to say that is is incredibly courageous but also very human and i think is is to be applauded all of them that participated the act of telling your story is an act of courage because it is not easy it is not uh uh fun for the most part it was uh it was difficult it was long it was it was heavy but it it helps you it heals you to be able to tell your story and here these people in particular who, for the ones in the Bataclan, the one in the council venue, who had been taken hostage for two hours, that this moment of their lives had been taken away from them. These two hours of their uh, of their life was was taken hostage by the, the the terrorists to be able to tell their story minute by minute, what they saw, what they felt, what they smelled, was a way to reclaim what had been stolen from them. And so it was very important. That it was an act of courage, of resilience, and healing on their part. Yeah, you got anything to add before I I kind of throw some things at you, Gideon? <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Okay, so so I mean, it, like I said, anyone listening, this is an absolute must listen as a human being, as a first responder. I mean, it, it was excuse me, as a much what must watch. I mean, it was such a absolutely one of the most powerful things I've ever seen. And being a responder myself, you know, I can invest in that even even further. But a few of the takeaways, I mean, obviously, I don't want to go over the whole entire thing, but a few things I think that were very powerful to me. The first one was you mentioned the uh, French prime minister was there. Um, is it prime minister or president? Uh, you had the president and the interior, uh, the minister of the interior. Okay, president. But the president was at the stadium, yeah. Yeah, okay, we'll make sure I get the right title. So it's in, it's a Germany versus France game. And so when the initial explosions go off, it's outside the stadium, even though it sounds like one of the terrorists tried to make their way into the stadium. And what I was very impressed with was the fact that he chose to tell them to keep playing, to, to try not to arouse suspicion. At first, you're like, oh, well, that's easier said than done. But then in the next breath, they say that his own son is in the stadium. So I thought that was very powerful because he's not making it now for strangers. He's including his own family member. And that decision undoubtedly saves lives. But the, the amazing part is he has very little information. It's actually the fire commander in the stadium uh, that the president goes towards and said, what do you think? And the, and, the, and the fire department official there says, we don't know what's happening. We have two choices. If we don't 
uh, if we stop and panic people, we might have a frenzy. There's 70,000 people there. If we tell, if we stop the game and say, okay, let's evacuate, we don't know what's outside. And so he makes a very difficult decision to keep everyone inside, including his son. It is a very personal one. And fortunately, it was the best because if, if they would have panicked people, there would have been a stampede and people would have died from that. If they would have let them outside, you had two more suicide bombers unbeknownst to them that were waiting, that exploded themselves a bit later on. So, but you, again, you know, making the right decision sometime, it's, uh, it's uh, inches and seconds is the, is the difference between life and death. And, uh, and these decisions are hard to take, but fortunately, they were the right ones. Absolutely. Well, another another thing that um, that I thought was very powerful is as it unfolds, and and you know, again, you said about the heroism, the way that the first responders, a lot of them obviously were the firefighters initially, segregated off, you know, sectioned off. They had the group leader and 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 the uh, the person assisting, and they started triaging, and they, you know, the, the innovation like using the the barriers as stretchers, you know, some of those things, but. You saw people banding together. You saw these responders acting just like you said. There was no what we call warm zone. They had no idea if that one of those people in the crowd was another one with a gun or a bomb that was going to kill himself. So initially, knowing, like you said, there's chaos and uh, ultimately what seemed to be a, a journey south to the Bataclan, um, it was just the, the heroism of these men and women, like you said, sheltering people, um, the actual responders themselves. And, and I think a very powerful moment to me that's kind of summed up from the responders' lens was the doctor, Medicin, I think it was, um, who had been on scene. He was kind of orchestrating the response. He had a chest wound patient. He you know, told him to hold pressure, obviously got caught up with all the other triage that was going on. And then when he came back, that person had passed away in that same seated position. And even though he was trying to maintain his composure, you could see in his eyes, knowing responders, that that moment has definitely stayed with him. And what's, if I may, what's incredible. So he's a fire department doctor, which means he's military. He was deployed. He's done Afghanistan. He's done Mali. So he's been on theaters of war. He's treated war wounds and all that. And here to see it, and you see it in his eyes, in the cafe that he knows that he's been to that restaurant. And then he talks about that. And, and just because he's doing triage and there's 30 other people and, and for 30 other people, it's at least, you know, 20 seconds per person. And by the time he comes back, that, that person has died. And to see almost a tear in his eye and holding that emotion, you see that humanity that rises to the surface, that all of them, even though they did an incredible job. Can you imagine you arrive at a terrace where you have 28 seats, 24 people are dead on that terrace or dying. And you are at first two trucks and everyone has to, 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 to do everything. It is, it is unbelievable the work they've done, the, the people they managed to save was an Herculean uh, effort coordinating with the civilians themselves who were helping. But they all talk about one thing, they all talk about when they would treat people, the people themselves, the victim, would say, don't take care of me. Take care of the next person. They're much worse off. I'm, I'll be okay. Take care of my neighbor. Take care of people that they don't know. And that was really what, what struck them is, again, that sense of protection for, for, for the other, for caring for the other above themselves. Yeah. I think another powerful moment for me 
you had the one lady, um, and I meant to write the names of all these people, but I forgot, but I guess it's probably a good thing I didn't because people listening probably don't know which person it was anyway. But there was a couple in the Bataclan. So now those three terrorists have come in. You've got 1,500 people at this rock concert. They are literally executing to the point where there are piles, mountains of bodies. Um, and this couple finds their way into, um, was it a bathroom where they got into the ceiling space? And this one lady is, is heavier. She's, you know, she's, she's obese and she's trying to get in. And obviously as, as you're recounting it, you know, you can imagine, especially she's probably wearing heels or something as well. And she's trying to climb up into this, this section that they found in the ceiling and she keeps falling. And she says, and you can almost see this, all these people waiting to get up into this, this safe haven away from these murderers. And this one woman is big and she can't get up there. So immediately you think she's going to say, and then everyone pushed her out of the way and they went up themselves. But she said that the complete opposite, that the people were cheering her on and helping her get up there and she got up there. And I thought that was an incredible moment of humanity because you would think the stampede selfishness effect would kick in, but it was the polar opposite. And they basically helped her emotionally and physically get in that hole before they got in themselves. Gideon, no, I'm I'm talking too much. <laughs> You're the one who took uh, the the best here. So. Uh, yeah, no, no, that, that that's uh, as you said. It's one of those moments where you know you expect the worst, but the the you, the, the best happened. And um, yeah, this, this lady who's here with her husband, and they've drove uh, on the same day hours. On their, on their small cars coming from the north of France to listen to one of their best uh, rock band. And uh, here they are finally, and uh, they, 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 the, two, the two kids are at home. Uh, the babysitter is, is taking care. They finally have the evening for themselves that they go to, to Paris and, and they know they're going to have a great time. Um, and the next thing they know, yeah, they, they, you have three terrorists shooting at each other, uh, at, at, at everybody around them. And, and, and the wound of an AK-47 is, is horrible. Uh, so they arrive along with maybe 20, 30 um, uh, people in a tiny little room. Uh, they, they try to lock the door, but it doesn't really lock. Uh, they, they, they are in this room where they, they don't know what to do. There is no windows, no escape route. Um, uh, behind the doors, they still hear the, the gunfires. Um, and suddenly someone says, there is a hole through uh, the, 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 the toilet ceiling, uh, which is a small area in the back. And, and so little by little, people are are getting up there and, and to get up there you have to put one foot on the toilet uh, then the second foot on maybe the 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 area where you you put uh, the toilet paper and anyway it's not that easy and but come the turn of, of this woman and, and as you said she's she she's kind of yeah she's obese and uh, and it's very hard for her she she the first time she a foot goes through the toilet the second time she falls on her husband, uh, and and yet uh, at, at that time they're looking at each other. She's con she's feeling so guilty that every second 
she uh, she's wasting. Um, uh, you know, the, the terrorists are going to open the, the door and, 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 and kill everybody and it will be her fault. Uh, but no, the, the people behind her who's making a line is are, are cheering her and, and saying, you can do it, uh, you know, and, and finally she, she managed to do it with maybe I think a, a foot on her husband's head and, uh, and her other foot, uh, someone is helping her with her with their hands. And, and the next thing they know, all those people are, you know, in this kind of strange place between the, the roof and, and, and this... Uh, and, and the ceiling, and 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 they are safe, uh, or at least they think, and they hear the the sound the sound of the guns uh, all over, and um, and and they don't know that for the next two hours uh, they are finding refuge exactly on the ceiling above where um, where the, the the venue is, where 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 the 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 the, the stage is, and pretending to be dead among uh, tents who are actually dead. Everybody is lying down. Everybody is... Uh, and that's the scene of, of hell uh, that, that was uh, the, the Bataclan. Uh, and anyway. Yeah. And, and it was such a powerful moment. I think the other one... There's one more thing I want to talk about and then, and then we'll go to Notre Dame because I know we're, we're almost at two hours now. Um is uh, the other thing I think it was very haunting was one of the women had the realization that three terrorists commanded the action of 1,500 men and women. And and there was that realization of, you know, I think, but ultimately, what if we had rushed them? What if we had gone, then, you know, some of us would have been killed, but the rest would have been saved. And it's, but I think it was a very, powerful lens into the fact that fear can paralyze us you know and obviously i'm sure they seemed like there was more than three of them too with all the you know the horrendous executions that were going on but i'm sure that's something that's going to haunt her to the day again you could see it in her face that so many people were killed is it 130 i think that day in, in the end wasn't it and uh in paris altogether it was 190 190 oh i got that wrong okay 139 90 at the at the Bataclan and, and but it's 130. I apologize. Oh no, no but problem. 90 Bataclan died. Okay, yeah. So I mean, you know, a huge amount. But I mean, again, easier said than done. Any one of us would probably would have been trying to find our void space in the ceiling somewhere to get away as well. But that was a powerful moment. That how you know again how a weapon can completely offset the quote unquote fair fight and put you know innocent civilians and make them so vulnerable i mean i just had people from the pulse attacks on a few weeks ago same exact thing so just just to kind of put it out i thought that was a very powerful moment as well yeah because i think that's where you see really the it talks to the helplessness of it and and when she says uh in her interview it, it, it's really i can't believe that three jackass because i think that's what she is are <laughs> You know, we're at the we're 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 fifteen hundred, and we're at the mercy of three jackasses with with guns, and it's yes, it's the power of fear and terror because this is the point of terrorism is terrorizing people and, and making them uh, uh, flee and making them full of fear and paralyzing them. But yet, as we see that, we see the the the, the country is you know I think this documentary is in a way a, a, a perfect 
f you uh, to, to 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 terrorism because I think the contrary happened. You at the moment where they wanted to terrorize us and paralyze us, that's where you saw the the the, the most incredible uh, uh, moments of of courage, of of compassion, of love in the middle of that horror and hate, and that's I think um, is really the. The, what, what, what really prevailed, and, and that's what we should hang on to. I think we've always, and Jadim was talking about that at the beginning, the way these people behaved, I think is always, is really for us kind of a vaccine against um, depression, uh, against uh, 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 that, you know, that thinking of, of, of everything, the world is such a horrible place, because when you hear the, the, the radio or the television, you know, it's not very, but when you see that at moments like this, you know, people can be so beautiful, so amazing. I think that's, you need that. You need that that kind of little shot in the arm that says, okay, you know, if, if they could do it, of course I can, or I, I need to try. Absolutely. Well, just one more element of that, and then I want to move on to, to Notre Dame and be mindful of your time. I think the other very powerful thing, and again, for the responders listening, I mean, I... I I did my best to become the best version of me. Was I perfect? No. Was I the best firefighter paramedic? No. But I mean, I think that's something we all push towards. But I think it's very important to highlight that when the SWAT team actually made entry to terrorists with semi-automatic weapons that had bomb vests around them, it took them one minute and six seconds to neutralize the threat in a narrow hallway with hostages. So I I don't think there's any better illustration of you are the sum of all your training up to that point, whether it's an organization, whether it's an individual, that that could have ended with a failure, lots of dead hostages and police officers, and maybe a further rampage because they just killed all the cops that came and so they could go back in and, and do some more. So what was your perspective on that? But I think the, the, the SWAT team commander, which is a, a fantastic human being, who had the words at um, you know at the uh, kosher supermarket uh, earlier in January? Who had been with his uh, SWAT team there after the Charlie Hebdo attacks? And here he's faced with an impossible situation, which he says actually to the uh, to the, the the chief of police, who asked him, but "Are we going to be okay when you breach?" And 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 the commander of the SWAT uh, says, "You know, stupidly, I I told him the truth. I said, no, it's not going to be okay because we're in narrow hallway. We have eleven hostages. We have two guys with AK-47s and suicide vests, and I'm going to lose probably half of my guys and half of the 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 hostages. But we have no other choice. We have to do it, and we're willing to take this. And when the commander is about to breach." He actually does something that he never does before. He checks in with his men and said, are you guys okay with it? He's, 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 he's their superior. He doesn't have to ask them whether they feel okay about the mission or not. But he wanted to make sure they realized what they were about to do. And all of them to a T were saying, of course, let's go in. We know, we know the risk. Let's do it. And to see that, again, that time distortion, when the hostages talk about that, uh, that breach, for them it lasts half an hour. But we found the, 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 the tape of it, and, and it's a, a, a minute and six seconds where the, the guys are emptying uh, uh, clips of AK-47s into a giant uh, uh, shield that protects the SWAT teams. And that the result of that, after the, that one minute and six seconds, the two terrorists will be dead. Deto uh, one, by detonating, is a suicide vest. The other will be shot uh, before he could do so, there's not a single cop uh, who's um, 
There is one cop who's hurt with a bullet to the hand, but that's it. And none of the hostages are, are hit. So it is almost like a miracle operation because technically half of them should have died. So the, the, the courage and the, uh, and, and, you know, of, of these incredible SWAT members, which I'm, I'm, I'm close to some of them and I, I, I really admire them the same way I admire the firefighters. They were incredible that night. And it's, it's people who are willing to put their lives on the line uh, for all of us. That uh, that you know uh, uh, commend our our respect and uh, our, our our and for us to be grateful. Beautiful. Well, Jedio, I know you've got to go soon. So before you do, I want to get you in one more time. And I'm sorry that we've gone so far. I know you got to pick up your kid. Um, just quickly, so tell me about um, Notre Dame. I was actually in Paris in 2016, so a year after the attacks, but before before the fire. So we've literally got pictures outside Notre Dame. Um, so again, as Parisians, Parisians, tell me about you know that event and what made you want to do another documentary on them. Well. Uh... I, we like, like many uh, people around the world. We we, we watch uh, on TV or on, or on a computer screen uh, this monument. Uh, you know, slightly. I mean, completely disappearing before our eyes. And and it was not just any monument. It was it was Notre Dame de Paris. It was the cathedral of. Of, of Notre Dame. It was this place where everybody who has been lucky enough to travel to Paris had seen it and maybe uh, visited uh, inside. It, it, it was this homage to uh, what human being can do uh, of, of that, that is so beautiful that is, uh, whether you're a believer or not, it, did, it didn't matter. It was it was a it was a beautiful piece of culture of architecture. It, it represented so much. Uh, it was built over eight hundred years ago uh, at a time where it, it was just insane to 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 conceptualize uh, how to build uh, something so monumental that would stand uh, time. Uh, there was revolutions. There was. Uh, Kings and emperors and 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 uh, and and government that tried to to uh, destroy it. Um, uh, time alone was not uh, uh, you know uh, nice to 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 this beautiful place. Uh, but but uh, somehow it it withhold the the it withhold the 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 crisis of time. And so it's it's one of those monuments where you, you, you know, you, you, you're alive and, and wherever you are in the world, you, you're thinking, okay, okay, the, 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 everything is going bad. Uh, you know, you switch on TV, you, you look at your, you listen to your podcast, uh, your, your radio, you, the world is going mad, but at least you can be pretty sure that some monument in the world, some, some things that are really standing and that will be standing for the rest of, of time. And Notre Dame de Paris, for everything that it represented, um, was one of those monuments. You know, the, the, the pyramid of Egypt, uh, uh, anything you can think of that uh, just huge, the seven beauties of the world. But uh, but here it was it was being destroyed in front of you. I mean, this thing that uh, that was making your life 
more grounded suddenly was disappearing in smoke and 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 uh, so Jules and I, yeah, we, we lived it live, like, like most people, and uh, we're so relieved when we discovered that uh, the fire department uh, of, of Paris had managed to to save the, uh, Notre Dame, and uh, and of course we thought, you know, uh, there got to be more to it than just guys and and girls coming in and and putting water on on it and and. And that's when we discovered, uh, again, thanks to Chief Pfeiffer, um, that um, and, and Jules' relations uh, with the, the French uh, uh, fire department, that the rescue of Notre Dame was nothing but easy. That Notre Dame should have been destroyed uh, 10 times that evening. And if it was not for the absolute abnegation uh, and sacrifice uh, of the firefighters, um, stories that were not told, uh, stories that people of Paris and France uh, didn't know about, uh, yeah, we, we, it would be Paris without Notre Dame, which is something insane to think about. It's like uh, Egypt without the, 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 the pyramids. It would... And, and and so, um, so so we 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 started to uh, to talk to the firefighters and 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 discovered that uh, what they had gone through, what they were, what they fought was was just insane. And um, and Juju, so please uh, please go. And, uh, well, I, I think just, I'm so sorry. I I have to run. No, please. Thank you so much. You've been so generous no, no. with your time. It was a great honor to, uh, to, 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 to be on your show. Uh, your show is amazing. Th th thank you so much. Uh, Jules, for forgive me. I have to, 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 to pick up the kids. Okay. <laughs> Merci I'll, beaucoup. I'll channel your, your answers. I'll, I'll have to do a thicker French accent, but I think I can. <laughs> we'll just pretend to be both. <laughs> that. Okay. No, but, um, so, um, no, but it was really that, as Gideon said, you know, we... Um, um, the relationship we, we had already uh, created with the, um, the the head of the, the of the fire department, which had changed, it was not the same from um, uh, November 13, but it was his deputy, which I had uh, got to know. A lot of uh, Paris firefighters and SWAT teams from Paris um, did a lot of trips coming to New York, and that I would uh, um, I would uh, um, uh, greet them when they would arrive with Chief Pfeiffer, and there would lots of exchange that we've done over the years, and so we have a great relationship with these uh, uh, with these people. And I called the um, the, the chief of the uh, uh, fire department in Paris uh, uh, a couple of um, a couple of uh, weeks after, and to tell him, but you know, we were all so proud, we were all watching, and in awe of what you guys did and he said you know you have so many incredible stories you know i think you should maybe do a documentary about it so um went to paris to 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 meet with him and discovered once again you know this the the um the, the, the this incredible courage not only of the firefighters but of the civilians that came to help the people who work in the church who, who came to work the people who were working on the on the scaffolding that came to to help also and it's that also that comedy of error, that humor that we were talking about on November 13, that is almost there. That kind of, uh, another kind of, you have the impression, a Saturday Night Live sketch of uh, when they go to try to um, to retrieve the crown of thorn, because the crown of thorn is supposed to be in uh, in uh, in a safe in at Notre Dame. Except that, uh, you know, so they, 
you, you have to imagine this building, the entire roof is on fire and firefighters are on teams working on all the facade up, down, on the right, on the left, in the north, in the south. And one team in particular is in, is in charge of saving the artwork and, uh, and all of the relics. Because there is actually a, a department in a, a special department in the fire department that takes care of firefighters in charge of saving um, uh, works of art who operate in museums and all that because it is something that you have to think about. You know, don't go put uh, 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 water on a Leonardo da Vinci or something like that on a painting. So, but it's and so you know, here are these firefighters who at first you know were so excited. Oh, great! I'm going to uh, go fight the fire on Notre Dame. Because it's firefighters and firefighters, you have that amazing duality where you don't want bad things to happen. But if there is a big fire, you want to be the one who is the first due and will will get to it. it it's um, and so he arrives. Oh, great! I'm going to be able to uh, go up there, go close to the fire. I'll be with the nozzle. It'll be amazing and all that. And the chief said, "Well, I'm sorry, but you need to go and and find the crown of thorn and all that." And he said, "Okay, I'm not very religious, but okay, let's go find it." And, and comes that comedy of error where they have to look for a safe. They look everywhere. As he says, he looks behind paintings. He looks on the floors. He moves everything while the roof is on fire and lead is, is melting and is falling like a, a, a cascade of lava in the middle. And so they have to be careful that it doesn't fall on them. They finally found uh, uh, the safe, break the safe, come out tri triumphantly with the, the crown of thorn. And as he says, you know, I'm carrying really a... The, the, the top like this because I don't want to break it. I don't want to break the uh, the thorns because, you know, a crown of thorns without thorns, I will can, I'll, I'll get into trouble. So he comes in out and here comes the curator of the uh, 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 of Notre Dame who said, and here we see this amazing firefighter so proud to come inside. And unfortunately, we have to tell him it's not the right one. That's the display one. And they go back into another treasure hunt to try to find it. So, where they all, so it's it's what we wanted to show like in most of our program. Reality is messy, is beautiful, is funny, is is dramatic, but that's the beauty of human nature. You can you can overcome everything with with humor and with love. And so here to see these incredible firefighters who, what we didn't realize at the time, uh, you know, are a few of them are decide to go up and are sent in a suicide mission in a way. Uh, there is no one in the in uh, no civilians anymore in Notre Dame. The, the the church has been the cathedral has been evacuated, but the two towers which hold the bells. The bells are weights about eight to ten tons each, and there's about ten of them. And they realize that inside of these towers, the frame that holds the bell is all made out of wood, and it's starting to uh, to 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 catch fire. Which means that at some point, the beams are going to to collapse. The bells are going to go to come crashing down and you'll have a domino effect and the entire cathedral is going to implode into itself. And here is the head of the fire department who is faced with two choices. One, he does nothing, pulls everybody out, let the, the, the building collapse. The world will lose one of these most beautiful icons of architecture and faith and, 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 and art. But, you know, no one will take place. Or you send a commando. Uh, that knowing that you have about half an hour before the collapse, who have to try to uh, um, uh, put water on the beams that are holding the, the, the bells and save the entire edifice at, uh, at the cost of their lives. And, uh, and the, 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 the chief uh, uh, of the fire department goes and talks to the French president, explain to him the, 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 the choices, and the president said, go for it. And 
you have a, a commando of about 10 firefighters who go up and will fight their way inside of the tower, fight their way up the, the, the stairs and will uh, will actually extinguish the fire probably five minutes uh, with five minutes to spare. But within these five minutes, it could have been the end of all these firefighters and, and that amazing uh, monument. So you have all of these incredible... And w- what I love is these firefighters, like all firefighters, took in such beautiful terms that it's not fancy it's not you know they don't have degrees in in uh, in, in uh, uh, artistic writing and all that but it comes from the heart and it's quite profound and it's quite moving when they talk about their 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 their, their, their love for their fellow uh, uh, firefighters for the love for their job the love for paris the love for 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 what they are going to do, and it's it's simple and it's it's touching, and once again inspires us because that's what what we always want. Once we're, we're groupies of firefighters, so we want to every time we can praise them, we'll do it. But these are, are you know these amazing heroes, and and and, and reminds us at a moment where we think everything can be over. Well, not not always. You still have that glimmer, that spark of uh, of hope uh, is in all of us, and and that's what we have to remind people, especially this this year, <laughs> or at least last year, I should say. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, and absolutely, and I think that's what I saw, as again as a fireman, so understanding the logistics, the actual dangers of what they did, and even just the fact they even had water so far up, you know, having to go through all these like ancient stairwells. I'm amazed they even managed to get a water supply in the first place, but to to have to be standing under wooden structures that are holding bells of that size they knew if 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 one of those broke that that was it they were all going to get you know taken down with the bell and obviously killed immediately but but again and you you know that firsthand when you're a firefighter, you don't think about that. You think about it. It's in the back of your head because that's what makes you a good firefighter. You're not oblivious to the danger. You are aware of the danger and you take into consideration. But you know why you're here. And and at the same time, uh, you know, it's uh, the best feeling in the world is you go into a firehouse of, uh, after a good job. The smiles all around and it uh, smells like a uh, fireplace on, <laughs> on their bunker gear and everyone is happy because they've done a good job or they save people. That's that's the, the best reward is uh, helping out someone at the end of the day. Absolutely. Well, a couple of things I want to touch on on that one. Um, so firstly, just like Tony, you had yeah. a rookie, but this time it was a female firefighter who had not seen fire until this point. She's been on for two weeks. She's on, you have to think, uh, 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 woman firefighter, young, fantastic, lots of courage, lots of heart. She's been on the job for, I think, a two weeks or two months. I don't remember and her first job is actually uh, Notre Dame. She's first due, which means she's the first truck to arrive. They go up all the way to the uh, inside of the roof. And there is a little door that comes into the, the roof. It's full of smoke. Uh, the fire has started probably half an hour ago. They go in, doesn't see anything. She goes with her uh, 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 officer. She, they're, they're attached to a, to a rope and they go up, they don't see anything and it's getting warmer and warmer and warmer. And she doesn't, she's never been to a fire. So she says, okay, it's getting hot, but I don't want to say anything because, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know if I'm supposed to say anything and, you know, I don't, I want to do a good job. And, and at some point the, the, her officer turns around and says, let's go out. It's too hot. And indeed, when they come out, they start to see that their all of their bunker gear is almost like uh, shining in a metallic way. It's because the uh, lead that the the outside of the roof is all lead sheets, 
was uh, melting and was melting on them in pools of, uh, of, uh, of molten uh, lava in a way and was starting to burn them. And their helmets started to melt. It was so hot. And here she is. That's her first fire. And she incredibly bravely goes in the middle of the fire itself and then would fight all night uh, on this. You know, you always have it, it's, it's uh, you know, these these little things of having another rookie there. I think uh, for November 13, it ended up that there was a cameraman in one of the fire trucks and uh, that was first due to one of the, the cafes. So you always have a little life is very strange and repeats itself. <laughs> Yeah, well, with the the molten lead, I think one of the most powerful images was the gargoyle with the lead spilling out of his mouth. Where normally it would be water, and here you have this uh, yes molten uh, molten lead uh, being uh, uh, spitted out of the uh, the 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 the, um, this, the statues like this. It's it's quite an incredible sight. Very very, very eerie. They all describe it as that eeriness, especially because you know it's uh, whether you've you've seen uh, uh, Notre Dame in uh, in the Hunchback of Notre Dame on, on Disney with uh, the the Hunchback, you know, or or you've seen the different movies. It's it represents, it's more than just a, a church. It, it, it evokes something, whether you're French, you're American, you're wherever. That it was more than a building. It is more than a building. Each stone has a little bit of part of, of, of our common humanity in all of us because it belongs to the world, these kind of places. Yeah, and I'm, I'm assuming that the bells rang um, following Bastille. I mean, some well, very powerful yeah. moments in French history. But yes, they did, and they were uh, they, 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 they they were uh, after the each uh, each world war, and it was a, an amazing moment. The when we discovered, you know, that part of Paris, it's on Ile de la Cité, which is one of the two islands right smack in the middle of Paris itself, on the Seine River, that uh, traversed the, uh, the, uh, the the town, and. That little island is a little bit like uh, it's a small village into itself. You know, they're there, they're, they have their own kind of little culture. They kind of look at outsiders strangely and all that. And uh, and here they would talk about, you know, Notre Dame is almost the, the, the breathing, beating heart of that of that little village. They hear uh, it's it's it sounds when the bells ring, when the uh, all that. And suddenly after the fire, the that beautiful uh, monument had gone silent, had gone mute. And they would describe it almost like a, a patient that had gone into a coma and were waiting for it to, 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 to speak and wake up and breathe again. And a few months after the fire, the um, uh, former French president died, Jacques Chirac, and it's customary to normally ring the bells, except the bells, there's no more electricity, there's no more of that, except that the... Uh, uh, the people at Notre Dame decides to go up and ring the bell by hand by attaching a rope to the to the knocker, and all of us, because they, they invited me to come with them, were rolling for 45 minutes, uh, rang the bells of Notre Dame, the biggest one, which is 13 ton by hand, which was a surreal experience. And when we came back down, people stopped the uh, the, the 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 people that went up and said, "You finally gave us back." Our, our, our beating heart. To hear her, it was like that comatose patient that woke up and said, I'm still alive, I'm still here. So it really represents, you have so many things that that, that that place represents for people of Paris, for people of the world, for people of France. Beautiful. Well, I think that's a, a perfect place to kind of end the conversation there. Just some few closing questions I'd love to ask people. I'd love to get your, your mind as well. Um, the first one is, is there a, a book 
that you love to recommend to people? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. Okay, uh, I'll have to find it again. I remember one of the things, and I think that corresponds to that. There was an amazing book that I had read extracts when I was in high school in France growing up that they, they made you read. And it was, I think it was the letters uh, that were sent by the people that were um, put to, uh, before, um, it takes place during the Second World War in France, and it was the resistance fighters and their last letters before they were executed by the Germans. And in these, you found this incredibly touching letter. And I remember reading one in particular of a young 16-year-old boy who was about to, to, to be executed for being part of the resistance. And he was executed by the Nazis, writing a last letter to his mother, asking her not to cry because of what he had done, he had lived. And he had done it in a way to save people, to save life and to preserve uh, uh, freedom. And in these moments of selflessness, I've always been touched by that, by these people like firefighters, like police officers, like first responders who are willing to put their lives on the, on, on, on the line for the rest of us. And I had always find that. And that book that always uh, struck me, I'll have to find it again and give it to you. But uh, you, you put me on the spot. It's hard to <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you. That's a great, great answer. Um, what about uh, movies? Is there a movie? Not a documentary, but a, a regular, like, you know, fictional film that you like? But a lot. That's a problem. I watch, you know, a whole lot of television and film and, uh, and series and all that. So, um, I'll go in first and see and documentaries. And again, it's maybe on the same subject, but you have an incredible documentary on uh, World War II in France and the resistance called The Sorrow and the Pity by Mike, Max Ophuls. It's just about four hours long. It's, uh, it was filmed, I think, uh, 15 years after the war. And it's a fascinating look into uh, normal human beings who suddenly find themselves, you know, uh, their world put upside down and Nazi occupation at that time and having to fight, even though they're not, you know, they're not trained, they're not all that and how, you know, you you face evil. So it's always kind of relates to the things in terms of movies. Oh, there's too many of them. It's it's hard to uh, to, to think in. Um, I'll have to think by by genre and all that. But uh, that's too hard. There's no, too many of them. Beautiful. <laughs> that was a great. I've never heard of the, the sorrow and the pity before, but it's oh. it's funny. I meant to say as well, when we started the very first explosion in um on november 13th was in a stadium where france and germany were playing a friendly match and again yeah. that goes to show that people you know innately are good and sometimes yeah. some bad people get put in positions of power or you know whether it's power governmentally whether it's power because of a weapon they hold but ultimately we're just men and women who want to feed our children put a roof over our heads you know and, and watch them grow up but, and that's why you see in every conflict, in every, you know, people of all sorts, you know, uh, are stepping up against tyranny, no matter their, their, where they're from, no matter their, uh, what country they're part of, or their, their religion and all that. That, that spark of, of hope and humanity is in all of us. And we see it time and time and time and time again. Absolutely. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to talk to the first responders, military and associate. Yes. So Piper. And yes, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll talk to him. I'll, I'll, I'll see if he, if he's interested and I'll ask him to reach out to you if he is. Beautiful. Thank you. And actually on that same token, 
Because, you know, like, for example, you mentioned the helmets. One of the things that drives me crazy is, is people looking down their nose at firefighters from other countries because they don't wear what I call the leather sombrero that we have here, the, you know, <laughs> the, the antiquated helmet. And people in the fire yeah. service love it and they, they hate pistol grips. But the reality is the men and women of the fire service around the world do the same job, you know. So that's the kind of message that I want. But I would love to get... A, um, a member of um, Sapo Pompier, the uh, Paris French firefighter, but obviously they have to speak English. If there was one that had been at both events or you know, one or the other. Uh, I can talk. To, uh, let me see what I can do. I, uh, let me think of a couple of heads. I can think of a, a, a couple of them. Uh, one would be great is the, the one who was chief of, uh, uh, of the fire department on November 13, but he's a very, very, very busy man still. So I don't know, but if not, I can try to think of firefighters that were at both, either Charlie Hebdo or November 13 and Notre Dame. And I've come, uh, I have a couple of friends. I'll, I'll reach out to them. I'll see which one has the better English. Beautiful. Thank you so much. All right. So then the very last question before I let you go, well, before we make sure everyone knows, you know, how to find the films you've done, if there's anything that you do want to say as far as future projects that won't be bad luck. Um, what do you do to decompress? Uh, being very French, I, I cook. To decompress, uh, it's, you know, basic, simple pleasures in life. I will cook, I will garden, I will uh, have amazing meals with my friends and uh, drink a nice bottle of wine and uh, with my family. And uh, right now it's around the, the fireplace and uh, just normal things, the really normal things, just you know, enjoy the people who are around me. That's, that's, you know, what I, I take from all that. Every single, you know, happy moments is to be treasured. Like it's the last one. And it doesn't have to be a big thing. It could be, you know, this amazing moment where you have a dinner party. Well, nowadays, this past year, we didn't have a few, but you know, where everyone is having a great time and laughter is echoing through the, to, to, through the, the apartment. And, you know, that's all it takes. That's happiness for me. Beautiful. Yeah, I think that's that's something that's been the negative this last year, even though this last year is what you make of it. And in comparison to you know some of the the events we've discussed, it was a very good year for most people. But yeah, that that tribal element, that that community, social, I think, is so important. We're a social animal. We need we need our social contact. It defines who we are as a species. So absolutely, that's taken away. It gets, but it will be good again. We've lived through, through, through on this earth through much, much worse. It will pass. It will be horrible. And we have to remember the loss and the people who've, who've lost along the way and celebrate their life and their courage. But this too shall pass. Yes. Yeah. And I think just like what we've discussed as well, we've been taught some lessons. We've been taught some lessons on our country's wellness. We've been taught some lessons on the environment. So I hope we will take those lessons with us and, and improve in the future. But we, we all have to, I think it's Chief Pfeiffer who always talk when he talks about the trauma we've all lived. He said the most, you know, when you live a trauma like that, you have two choices. One, you don't learn anything from it. You don't gain anything from it. And all this is for nothing. Or two is you, you try to find something positive in all of this. You remember it always, but you don't let it define you. You take it inside of you. You let it transform or add something positive to your life and then you move on while never forgetting. 
but do not be defined by that. And so that's the things we have to do. And same thing by this is that's, that does not define us. Let's we've learned all have lessons from this. Let's take positive ones and move on and, and remember this moment. Beautiful. Well, one I did put some uh, some posts out asking if people had questions, and I think there was a couple. One, do you still stay connected with the department? Obviously, you've, you've told us that you're good friends with Chief Pfeiffer. Um, still go to the firehouse every now and then, which is always amazing. Even though you know, there was very few, I think from the 55 that worked there, there's probably three from that day so you know every now and then i arrive and there's a rookie open the door and say yes sir how can i help you and i say yeah. go go wish the, the the rig and go make me a coffee and then i'll go and see the guys but you know it's fun it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it has a magical feeling for me beautiful and then the other one is people ask about a follow-up well obviously we're about to hit 20 years um without jinxing you and getting to, to- no no no, no. Well, we've always, every five years, we've always did kind of what we call an update towards the end. We always do a half an hour of, uh, after the documentary on, you know, what have these people uh, uh, become, what has happened, or highlighting certain uh, things happening, whether it was the, uh, the, the psychological trauma. Well, we did that for the fifth year anniversary, for the 10 year. It was more, unfortunately, the people starting to die, and we had lost two close uh, friends, firefighters from the firehouse due to that. So, um, for the 20th, we're, we're in talks right now to, but we'll most probably do an update at, uh, for, for that point. But, um, it's a, it's still a little bit early right now, but we're considering it, of course. Beautiful. Well, Jules, I just want to say thank you so much. I mean, this random English bloke reached out, you know, and I want to actually before I want to say thank you as well to Kate Casey because, I had been looking for you guys for a long time. As I mentioned before, I totally understand you know, the nature of, of what you do and you know, just your personalities that you don't want to be out there. Um, but when Kate had managed to do that incredible conversation with you on her podcast, um, in response to mine, someone tagged her. She immediately messaged me and sent me your email. So we're having this conversation because of her. But um, but uh, yeah, I want to say thank you so much. We've been talking for two and a half hours Um but you know the 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 lens that you have through from nine you know from from New York through to Paris, I think is invaluable. And even though the documentaries speak volumes, your you know yours and Jedion's story through your eyes through your words, I think is something that a lot of us haven't heard. So thank you so much for being so generous today. Oh, no, my pleasure, and and thank you to to you and all the these amazing first responders. You know where we're. All we do is, is, is really an homage to them and uh, a way to say thank you in a way that we'll never be able to thank them enough. You know, they're what, how can you thank someone who saved your life? So it's our pleasure and it's uh, our honor to be able to, to help in any small way. So no, my, it was a fun conversation. I, I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm.